is there more that I could know about what I'm doing out on the track? Like, I feel like I'm totally just winging it here um, compared to the way that it was approaching it. But, but there um, was no setting or algorithm for like how big of balls that the, that the AV play yeah. had, right? <laughs> how much, you, how much you can, yeah, how much you can push it, it. it. Yeah. Yeah. They had not quite factored that in. Um, <laughs> I assume he kept receipts and you've paid him back, right? Uh, well, we actually do have an agreement where there's uh, uh, there is I have not actually paid that fund out to my dad, but there is a, a faction of my LLC that is, um, you know, partially a, a, a reimbursement kind of thing. Tell you what, I've done a lot for old Matt. What have you have done? You? What have you done? <clears throat> Maybe I haven't done that much for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Oil & Whiskey, an Ironclad original. Today's guest is IndyCar Series Pro J.R. Hildebrand, who drives for the number 11 Chevrolet for AJ Foyt, AJ Foyt Enterprises. I was going good, and I fucked it up. <laughs> J.R. also serves as an adjunct lecturer on autonomous vehicle research at Stanford University's School of Engineering REVS program. You can learn more about J.R. on his Instagram, at J.R. Hildebrand, and at jrhildebrandracing.com. J.R., welcome to Oil & Whiskey. Welcome, Stoked to man. be here, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Dude, pleasure to have you. We appreciate you cutting the time out to join us. Be honest. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Knew about your uh, car enthusiasm and knew about your little bit about your racing career. And then five minutes prior to starting this, read the show notes and saw that you were a lecturer at Stanford and kind of got a little nervous. Thought you were just a race car driver. This dude's yeah, smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you're nervous, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's probably a little overblown. It's not like I'm... Uh, I'm not sitting in any classrooms lecturing in front of big group of big group of kids or something, but uh, yeah, had have had like the awesome opportunity to go out there um, and and basically just play around. You know, they the there's a group, the Revs program at Stanford has been working for years on on really specific autonomous vehicle stuff. So they have track cars that are just running laps around Thunder Hill out in Northern California. Um, they've developed a couple of drift cars. Um, so my role really, it was actually super fun. I, I got brought in initially just to be the human that they compared the data of the autonomous car against. So my only job was just to stand up for all of us, uh, all of <laughs> us non-robotic, you know, beings and go rip a lap time that was going to beat the, beat the AV, which I can say I'm still faster than, than the autonomous vehicles. But, um, yeah, I mean, it really actually ended up turning into a really fun thing to go do to learn learn on my end a little bit more about what was going on in that space but ultimately just to hang out with as with with anything like that just to go hang out with a bunch of really smart young guys and gals um you know doing some cool things does the uh does the ai have to learn the track and does it learn as fast as a human learns a track so it's interesting it's been a couple of years since i've worked with any of their cars that that go do you know track day stuff but um, they, they have it, like there's no human input in terms of what, so there's no cheating, basically there's no, you know, tweaking from the students or me or anybody else to make the car go any faster than it would go on its own. So basically they go out and they, uh, they, one of the students will drive the car around the furthest leftmost edge of the track and the rightmost edge of the track. So that basically establishes for the car, like this is the domain of space that you're allowed to use. 
And uh, so, and, and so honestly, like when I get in it, I'm using a little more road than they, <laughs> than they allow the, the AV to use. But um, so it, but it figures out its own racing line. So it kind of has an algorithm and a program that it runs to decide what it thinks the fastest racing line is. It'll allow itself to vary a little bit from that, probably less. I mean, that was one of the things that when I first got there that I immediately recognized is I'm, I'm adhering to what I think the best racing line is actually a lot less than what the, what their car was doing, basically just because you get on a track, especially in a, I mean, the, the car that they were using at the time was an Audi TTRS. So four wheel drive, kind of small sports car. Um, but because the four wheel drive and everything else, like I was relying a lot more just on the behavior of the car through the corner. Like, I don't really care that I'm, you know, within an inch in the middle of the corner of exactly where I need to be, I'm manipulating the pedals and kind of making sure that I just have the car at the attitude that I want basically. And, and prioritizing that a lot more. So, um, the car, I guess to, to the short answer is it does, it figures everything out on its own. It has its own input strategy. It has its own, I mean, the, the thing has like military grade GPS. I mean, it knows within a couple of millimeters exactly where it is on the track. Um, it can make, you know, th probably thousands more adjustments than I would, um, you know, in terms of no, really, it, it's interesting. I mean, you really end up realizing with these things, how much information it has about every little thing that it's doing and can kind of use that to figure things out, um, you know, maybe in a certainly in a different way than, than I do. It made me think like, man, I'm is there more that I could know about what I'm doing out on the track? Like, I feel like I'm totally just winging it here um, compared to the way that it was approaching it. But, but there um, was no setting or algorithm for like how big a balls that the, that the AV can yeah. have, right? <laughs> how, much you, how much you can, yeah, how much you can push it, it. Yeah. Yeah. They had not quite factored that in. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe, maybe that was one of my, Advantages. Uh, lasting, lasting influences <laughs> on, on it. GPS yeah, side. For, for sure. Initially, it was an advantage. Yeah. On the GPS side, I wonder what happens when that goes wrong. Like, a, you know, an iPhone, you're driving along and all of a sudden it puts you like above a highway, you know, or it puts you like <laughs> yeah. over o over the ocean. Right. They probably have a little bit better satellite link. Well, than you know, what we're Josh, able some, to sometimes sometimes things go market. south. Was yeah. there were there any little mishaps out there? Is it I never track. experienced any mishaps. There have obviously been plenty of mishaps in this, you know, general space, which is maybe a whole nother conversation, but, <laughs> um, you know, it, I mean, just on the, to zoom out a little bit on the autonomous vehicle thing, it is, it is very interesting. Like I think the experience that I had in this very controlled environment where, you know, these guys are developing a car that is, is not, uh, not being designed to do a lot of the things that, it would need to do if you just drove it out. Like if you drove it off the racetrack, it wouldn't like know what to do. Right. Um, and that's on purpose. Like there we're jamming all the compute, compute all the energy just to try to get it to go as fast as it can on this track for a lap. Um, that, uh, it, even just it doing that and realizing how different it was, you know, that it was kind of being programmed to approach doing that. Like it was being programmed to approach building the fastest lap time, by being able to know all of this stuff about the surface it's on, the track it is, you know, where exactly it is on the track, you know, and, and as a human, you perceive a lot of those things, like you're using your eyes and your senses and whatever to, to kind of roughly gauge where you're at and all of these things. But I don't, you know, I don't know 
exactly how much brake pressure I'm applying at the exact spot for this corner lap after lap. Like you're treating all of those things with a little fuzzy edge around them and kind of adapting a lot, um, you know, along the way. And, and I think that that's an interesting, I found that to be sort of an interesting little microcosm of some of the crazy things that are happening with AVs out in the world. Um, you know, there's been a cruise has been in the news a lot lately for some accidents and incidents they've had in San Francisco and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like, well, if, if these things are being designed to operate in a world that they can know everything about, then they're just never, that's like, it's never going to happen. Like you're interacting with millions of humans, whether in other cars or walking on the street or on as a bicyclist or whatever. Um, so it's definitely, it's a pretty wild, you know, it's, it's a wild thing that's even happening in yeah, our really generation here anyway. But, um, you, you know, see a, any an of, interesting thing to get a little insight into. Any of that technology potentially in the next 10, 15 years of being any type of benefit to a race team to utilize that for any type of testing or learning, anything like that, short of, you know, just putting a driver in and think, I, I don't know. It was, it's probably just like the shot guy that doesn't want the driver to tell him what the car is doing wrong. Oh. You do <laughs> <an> actual- <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm the fucking computer. I'll tell me exactly. So I'm not listening to this guy. <laughs> That's definitely a thing already. Um, the, uh, you know, I, there's a form of this, which has existed in motorsports for some period of time already, which is just simulation basically. Right. So, you know, not necessarily it actually manifesting itself as an autonomous vehicle on track, but basically as good as that, like essentially an autonomous vehicle in a digital or, you know, virtual environment. And so um, we're already, I'm already up against, you know, an engineer that wants to rely really heavily on what the sim guy says, you know, how fast you can go through this corner. Um, but, you know, the the simulation tools are insane. And and it's kind of a the way that we use them, the way that the teams use them. I, and this is true across all of motorsports at this point. You know, it used to be maybe just an F1 thing, um, IndyCar, you know, in the IndyCar manufacturers. So in our, in our part of the world, and this is the same for NASCAR and cause we share a lot of the same equipment because some of the manufacturers, you know, cross up Chevrolet, I guess on the GM side right. um, is on, is in both places. We use the same simulator that, um, the Chevy NASCAR teams use. So we're splitting, um, use of that thing. They'll put the IndyCar chassis buck on it when we're going to use it. They put the NASCAR chassis buck on it when those guys use it, but it's the same kind of basic, setup and and machine um you know that the basically you have simulation that the engineers back at the shop are doing that uses a lot of the same programming that doesn't have the actual race car driver in the loop um so it's just an automated program based on you know data basically a derivative of data that they have from that track from a real race car driver but then it kind of extrapolates out like all right well if if our you know, real data showed that you could carry this this much lateral force through this corner once, then probably carry that much lateral force through every corner at this track in that same realm of speed and blah, blah, blah. So it kind of extrapolates what's possible. Um, the engineers will do a lot of the engineering development in that environment. Then we'll take kind of, you know, the whole team basically will take what they think that they've kind of extracted out of that in terms of ways that you can make the car faster without, you know, I mean, the beauty for the engineers of having that simulation environment is that the driver isn't changing, right? So you take the driver out as a variable, you can try, all right, if we go 
we make this damper change, if we make this spring change, if we run this roll center, whatever, like how does that affect the performance of the car when the driver is not a variable? Um, then we'll go to the physical simulator where the driver then gets in the loop, go through all of those same adjustments, see what the driver has to say, because they're they're inevitably end up being things that might be faster, but are just not realistic for the driver to actually extract that performance out of it. Maybe they make the car super twitchy or something that, you know, or or that is particular driver is not going to their driving style doesn't lend it lend it to, you know, getting that performance. And then you're going to the track or going to a test day and doing all of that stuff in real life. So you kind of have this triangle of pieces that there is a little bit of that, you know, autonomous component of it built into that. There is unquestionably a huge amount of just virtual environment work that's going on because they're so we're so limited in terms of how much track time you get, how many test days you get over the course of the year, um, you know, puts a real emphasis on what can you do without actually going and driving the car. Yeah, the, whole, the whole sim thing is wild. I yep. wonder what, what was the like era? What, what year, how long ago was it once that, when that went from being like, okay, this is a really good video game with great graphics <laughs> to like, all right, this is, I mean, this is a, we can make this a full-blown simulation that this can be utilized by a race team. How, how long yeah, has I that mean, been? I think on? it's probably 15 years ago now, more or less. Um, so you know, a few of the F1 teams, you know, now every F1 team has their own simulator, right? Um, and any, any big manufacturer that's involved in racing, probably of almost any kind, has their own big simulator. So F1's, prob- F1's really the only place where the t- specific teams have their own, you know, they're almost like manufacturers though, right? Like they're, they're their own constructors. That's kind of the only place across motorsports that that's the case either. So it sort of, you know, makes sense that that's, that's what it is. I mean, the experience that I have with it started, you know, we used to, when I was go-karting and coming up through the ranks, like you'd try to find a realistic ish video game to go learn a track or, you know, do this or that. But to your point, I mean, that was the early two thousands nothing like it is now when i so i raced you know i kind of came up through the open wheel ranks in the u.s had done a little bit of racing in europe but always just kind of in the off season or sort of a one-off thing here or there to go do a couple of races or whatever um you know i worked my way up won the indy lights championship in 2009 which is kind of our triple a like you know running uh, xfinity or whatever um won that championship with the andrettis that year you know, even at that time, that was, yeah, I mean, whatever. So that was 15 years ago, basically. Um, you know, I mean, that was a car that you still had to lift to, you know, it was a sequential box, but you still had to lift a shift. There was no paddle shift stuff. I mean, it was, it was a radio button on the steering wheel. Like there was no crazy, it was, you know, um, unrefined by today's standards, not super complicated, a, a fun car to drive actually, because it was, pretty raw but um you know i went from that at the end of that season i had tested the indycar a couple of times there was no simulator stuff on our side of the pond at that point um i ended up getting kind of grouped in with a number of junior formula champions in europe or from other parts of the world in this sort of shootout basically that the force india formula one team uh, which is now Aston Martin has gone through some various iterations, but same same core team, same building, all that kind of stuff as it was back then, um, was going to put on. So 
And that's actually a whole another sort of crazy story, how I even got involved in that, that revolved around uh, meeting the guy that took care of uh, the Indian owner, you know, billionaire owner's car collection in my hometown of Sausalito, California, um, chasing this guy down in a 427 Cobra to see where he was trying to go after a car show and ended up finding this warehouse full of you know, this car collection or part of this guy's car collection because he owned the local newspaper or some, some crazy, like coincidental thing. But I ended up getting on this guy's radar, getting included because I won the Indy Lights Championship. Um, and that basically that team as a Formula One team didn't have their own simulator stood up at that time, but they had a technical partnership with the McLaren Mercedes team, which was one of the first to develop like one of these crazy simulators. And so even back in 2009, when not every F1 team had them, and there, this was like, you couldn't be found outside of Formula One, um, the McLaren simulator was totally legit at that point. Like it was wraparound screen that you put 3D glasses on to, you know, get the depth perception of the, it was a full, you know, Formula One chassis that moved basically I mean, and it's it's proven to remain like this for a lot of simulators. You see these like big hexapod things where they're moving around all over the place. The the struggle with a lot of those, and I think why a lot of F1 teams have gone away from them, um, is because it's you get a lot of motion, but in an open wheel car, especially in an F1 car, it's just it's slower than you could ever. How you like you couldn't possibly get a big thing like that to it's move a, it's as a G fast, force, right? You can't simulate the as, G force. Yeah, and so even McLaren at that time was like, "We're not going to try to do anything. We're not going to give you any queuing for things that we don't feel like we can give you an accurate like queue for." So it didn't move. It, it wasn't like this huge warehouse that this thing's moving around all over the place. It was just moving <clears throat> really quickly, but not that much. Um, but I got in that thing, and I mean, it was just a I ended up being one of the two fastest guys in the simulator. And so the, myself and Paul DeResta, who was a Mercedes kind of factory young driver, he ended up in the race seat a couple of years later with that team. Um, he and I ended up splitting time in the three-day test in the F1 car um, out of that. And it's it's always interesting to me. So I think that's kind of around the point at which, like within a couple of years, every F1 team had something like that. But that was kind of the crossover point. It's really um, interesting. I was going to ask you that yeah. is how much in today's day and age are they using that to gauge talent as people are coming up to the ranks of putting them in a simulator and it's obviously way cheaper than getting getting a guy out there and wide a car up. But I mean, yeah, are they doing that? Gran Turismo movie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, is yeah, you're doing that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I I, seen and, the movie. Well, and honestly, they're yeah, it's it's a crazy thing now because the short answer is yes, absolutely. They're doing they're doing that. I, I think they're probably doing that at some level for like cup teams and IndyCar teams and all that kind of stuff. Like the, you know, we could argue about whether it's how realistic and how much does it really translate exactly to, I mean, I've had kind of experiences on both sides of that, but, but using it as a level um, of measure, if you've got other drivers that yeah, you're paying I mean, right now, it definitely, it definitely factors in. And then on top of that, it's, it's become a part of like the young driver ladder basically, you know, for, for guys to really develop a lot of totally relevant skill, um, to sort of maybe 
leapfrog the expense of having to having to do that in a real race car at a real racetrack because i, I mean i can speak certainly for the open wheel ladder it's i mean i mean i guess it's it's just simple to say like you know it's going to cost you 250 grand or something to do the lowest rung on the ladder you know and so that all by itself is just a total deal breaker for you know kids coming out of karting like there's a huge jump in the expense of pursuing that dream immediately now i mean it wasn't when i was coming up through it like you could get a couple of rungs up before it was like okay you got to go find a sponsor or you are you require having some family money that's expendable to go to go really take this on so in a way it's it's great because of that that the virtual stuff is as advanced as it is cuz I've definitely seen some young guys that didn't do a lot of in-person like real racing, but did a lot of simulator work and got into a car at a pretty high level and were really fast. What does that look like typically? Like if you're climbing that ladder and you're driving a physical car, a kid starts off in a go-kart. Is it you progress to a, like a sprint car, you know, open wheel car? How does that look like before you get to that stage of getting in an yeah, Indy car? I think it's, Every generation, it's a little bit different, um, you know, where the kind of where it splits off from, you know, open wheel to sports cars to, you know, stock car stuff, you know, open wheel and and NASCAR will say I have always been pretty separate pretty early on. Um, and you see a lot of like Harvick's kids and, you know, a lot of the NASCAR guys, they've got their kids running, running go karts. So, you know, now I think it's fairly common that you're actually doing road racing in go in karting as kind of one of those early steps, just because there's so little dirt stuff at a professional level. Um, and that even like NASCAR is migrating towards a lot more road courses. Like that's a bigger part of the overall kind of equation now. Um, but, you know, starting out either in, in go-karts or quarter midgets, or, or if I was, you know, I've got an eight month old here at home. If I was, if I was mapping out a career path for her, I'd say you just do both. Um, but that, uh, you know, karting and then on the open wheel side of it, you transition into, you used to transition through a school series usually. So Skip Barber, the Jim Russell driver's school, all of those schools had their own championships. Some of them were kind of regional, like you'd only be at one track maybe, and just run all the various configurations of that track over the course of the year or whatever. Um, Skip Barber was the one when I was coming up through all of it that, you know, travel around the country and you could run the national championship and all that kind of stuff, but, um, relatively inexpensive because the cars aren't super fast. And sometimes they're even running on street rubber or something like that. Um, but with coaching and instruction as a built-in part of making that transition, I'm a huge fan of that personally. Like, I think that that's it, it again, just, it's, a it's having that layer of instruction and learning kind of built in as opposed to you having to fend for yourself right away. Um, but you usually typically, you, you will typically go through a series like that when you transition from go-karts to cars. And then, you know, in the IndyCar side, there's, you know, what's called the road to Indy. So you run like Formula Ford 2000, then the USF or US Pro 2000, which is a little bit faster than that. These are all, you know, carbon fiber chassis, wings and slicks, open wheel cars now. Um, Indy Lights is sort of the last rung on that ladder than than IndyCar. So, you know, that's a little bit like coming up through ARCA, Trucks, Xfinity, NASCAR in Europe, 
you know, you're running Formula Four, Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One is kind of the the route there. And you know, there's a lot of open wheel. It's typical if you're if your end game is either open wheel like F1 or or IndyCar, but you're open to sports car racing. Um, or even frankly, if you start out thinking that you want to get into sports car racing, like road course sports car racing, whether that be GT or prototype, you'll typically follow the open wheel ladder kind of as far through it as you can get. Cause that's just where it's the most stacked in terms of talent. Um, you know, the, the big factory, you know, Porsches and BMWs of the world are hunting for their young guys in the open wheel ladders in both Europe and the United States. So that's fairly typical to follow those all the way up. So is it possible in today's day and age for a kid who's a rock star sim racer to bypass a good portion of those steps? Like maybe never gotten a cart lands himself. Yeah. I th- Can you I, land yourself in an Indy car? I mean, is that, is that, feasible? I think that that's a stretch probably, but the, you know, to, to leapfrog, I think you could bypass carting for sure. And, be a rung or two up on that ladder. I mean, I think, I think wow. sort of the, That's cool. you know, I mean, I, cause I think, I think certainly on the NASCAR side, like you could, you could get in an ARCA car probably. And if you'd have done enough of it and you were actually really good, I mean, obviously all of it just depends on you having the predisposition to genuinely be really legit. But if you took, I think, I guess to put it a different way, if you took guys that have ended up being really successful at the highest levels, you could have kind of manipulated the beginning of their careers probably to be on either side of that. And they, they would have developed the requisite skill along with their just natural talent to be able to jump in at, you know, somewhere in the middle and work their way up from there. I think that that's, that's at least, that doesn't feel, I don't know that I'd say that that's the, the best way to do it, but I don't think that that's unrealistic to say that it's doable. That's wild, man. I mean, I'm, I might be past my prime now, but I would say so. What, what <laughs> I would I, definitely say so. Uh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. But, dude, as a kid, I could rip in cruising USA, right? I'd carry speed through. <laughs> it's not really the, a the, the double, oh, the double dude, stomp through on the through the pedal wheelies. <laughs> I'd come through the nitros. red. I'd come through the redwood forest like nobody you've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if that could have been like I never got discovered, right? I nobody the, ever. <laughs> I, the big problem in our simulator was the uh, clamp on steering wheel kept coming loose from the TV dinner tray. Oh, I was talking about like the, the full blown arcade. Oh, like, like oh, Dave and arcade. Buster's, you know. Well, uh, I'm interested. You know, it's a good segue. How how did you get your start? Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, you seem like you're very well, guess, extremely intelligent, obviously, and and you know, that. obviously very talented behind the the behind the wheel. So I'm interested in in seeing how you one got smart along the way and. You know, and we're dumb enough to stay with cars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's really the question, yeah. isn't it? Right. Um, I got into MIT at high school and didn't go, and so I always tell people like, wow. I think that that actually says the opposite about me of what you initially think, <laughs> which is that I was stupid enough not to go to MIT and do this instead. But um, the I got I, so I actually started racing by today's standards kind of late. So I didn't start racing. I didn't start actually racing go like my first full season of racing go-karts. I was 14, which to the average person sounds super young and, and it is, but I mean, most guys are most guys that I ended up racing against that were my age coming up. They six, seven, eight go-karts years old from, they were like, yeah, yeah, seven or eight. I mean, I was playing T-ball or something. What right? part of the country um, was this Northern California? So I grew up in the Bay area. What made you um, want to do it at 14? You're just like, I want to go so, racing. 
You know, my dad, uh, my dad had vintage race cars from when I was a kid. So it was always just a hobby for him, but he had a, he had a 68 Camaro that was a a sedan car. So it was a race car from when it was new. He bought it when I was like one or, you know, early nineties. Um, so it was always just a vintage racing thing for him. He never, you know, pursued it professionally and, and always had cars that were kind of like that. But his first car was that 68, you know, it did. SECA hill climbs. So I guess the point is it never actually raced in a Trans Am race, but it was of that spec basically. Um, so 302, you know, Bad Corvette brakes, you know, all the, all the stuff. Yes. And so I grew up going, you know, in Northern California, I don't think is, or that part of Northern California, especially is maybe not really thought of as like a hotbed for where race car drivers come from, but you've got Sears point in Sonoma. That was 45 minutes away. Laguna, which was like an hour and a half. Um, growing up in the nineties between those two places, you saw, you know, I mean, you had Dale against Jeff Gordon at Sonoma every yeah. year. And then you had, you know, Jimmy Vassar and Ryan Herta and like all the stars of cart during that era, you know, IndyCar as it was then down at Laguna and John Forrest doing, you know, half pass burnouts. And like, it was a amazing era to be able to have you know just to have season passes to the contemporary racing that was going on we went we saw ama bikes like whatever you wanted to see it was at one of those places um and then you know my dad racing at the vintage races you know four six eight times a year whatever you know maybe racing at one or two other places up and down the west coast um as it fit his schedule um you know, and and so he was racing in the Trans Am group un, up until there became a point when, as you guys probably know now, like all of the real deal Trans Am cars are in that group now. But back then, it you know wasn't quite the thing that it that it is today. Um, so he raced in that group, and that was just a badass thing to kind of like see and and be around. And, and he was, you know, him and his brother were. You know, his CPA at Pricewaterhouse Coopers and, you know, partner in San Francisco, but he and his brother are like pissing the neighbors off, have the cops coming up to the house in Sausalito because they're setting the timing at like two o'clock in the morning, trying to get things sorted to go up the track <laughs> the next day. Mom's like, what the fuck is going on up there? You know, like, and, uh, and so it was just a cool, like I, I became sort of a gearhead because of that, right? Like going to the vintage races, you see you see the whole history of motorsport, you know, laid out right in front of you. It's vintage F1 cars from the, you know, from the twenties and thirties to the sixties and seventies and Trans Am and Can-Am and all this stuff. I mean, you see, you know, Parnelli Jones written on the top, on the door frame of like 30 different cars that are all different shapes and sizes and sounds and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I really attribute a lot of my just general interest in, racing to to all of that to seeing the the design evolution over time to hear you know and and from especially during that kind of late 60s early 70s era all of the various types of cars that fit there just this badass force it doesn't get much more badass than that it just doesn't right and so um you know that's still really near and dear to me and, you know, my dad's continued doing, I've raced against my dad now, um, a couple of times, which is fun to kind of go full circle on that. But, um, I mean, to really where it all started for me was, was on, on that side of things and that they, you know, go-kart racing is, is tough because, you know, everywhere across the country, there's a baseball field or a basketball court or whatever, like right down the street, 
there just wasn't somewhere super close for me to go do that. I, I played baseball competitively, like all the way through high school. Um, so I, I kind of did like normal kid sports stuff for a long time. Um, they ended up opening, opening up the go-kart track at Sears point when I was 13 going on 14. So that was, I had driven go-karts a couple of times. Me and my dad had gone down to Ventura and done the Jim Hall school down there and some other stuff like that. But, um, you know, it, it really started with having somewhere close by and, and I was lucky basically for the, you know, the Jim Russell driver's school was at Sears point at that time. And the way that it was set up was like, if you won one of their karting championships, you'd get a three day school for free at the big track. If you did any of the three day schools, you could do the graduate runoffs at the end of the year. And I ended up winning that and got a full season in the big cars for my first year transitioning out of go-karts into a full-size wings and slicks, you know, proper open wheel car for free there. So it was kind of, I was able uh, in, in a way that is almost not even a thing anymore, you know, back then early kind of mid two thousands, I was able to get through those first few rungs on the ladder showcasing that like, Hey, this was worth spending the time and energy to try to figure out how to do without having to make that enormous upfront investment, which I think you know, for us and for my family and stuff made a big difference for sure. What was the first cart chassis and motor? Go-kart chassis? Yeah. Uh, I was on a, I was actually on a, can you guys hear that? The dog? No, no, no. you're good. Okay. Um, the, uh, the first chassis that I was on, I raced a track magic, um, which was a, you know, us brand. Um, you know, so you're always racing against like CRGs, Tony carts, you know, all that kind of stuff. I raced a track magic, uh, just 125 Perilla, which was like a, they call it a tag. So like touch and go, you know, single speed clutch cart was my, was my first program. At what point in the career does it get to a point where you're either y'all got to start shelling out some big money or you got to hit the streets and start getting some sponsors? Yeah. I mean, for everybody that's different for me, <laughs> it was, um, you know, I was lucky, lucky to get through after I won the, so I got in the Jim Russell championship series, won that I got some, got some dough to kind of go towards the next thing. That was not yet a leap that was super expensive, kind of like it is today. I mean, at that time it was like, you know, 125 K for a year to do that next thing. Um, you know, but that was starting to get in the realm of like, all right, you know, 40 grand goes a long way to help me do that. But then you still got to come up with like a pretty good nut to do that and then gets exponentially more expensive at that point. So I was, I was fortunate both to, you know, that my dad was, you know, high enough up at his job and doing well enough and whatever that, that he, we could kind of support that inside the family for a little while. Um, you know, which I appreciate even to do it at that level, not everybody can, can pull off. I assume he kept uh, receipts and you've paid him back, right? Uh, well, we actually do have an agreement where there's, uh, uh, there is, I have not actually paid that fund out to my dad, but there is a, a faction of my LLC that is, um, you know, partially, uh, a, a, a reimbursement kind of thing. I so, use on um, post-it notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of IOUs. Exactly. Um, the, uh, and so, but at that point, I guess I was also lucky that I, I was at that stage, you know, one of the, one of, I guess, a, a, a lesser number of 
a young American race car driver guys that was going in the open wheel direction as opposed to going towards NASCAR. And so, you know, the mid 2000s open wheel racing in the US was not particularly healthy cart and you know what was then it had turned into champ car at that point and the IRL were separate so it was like it was just kind of a mess. And so um I got a lot of support from almost like benefactors basically that wanted to see more young American guys succeed in open wheel. And, and maybe that was you race in the U S for a while and we try to get you over to Europe and you go, you know, try your hand over there or whatever. But, um, you know, I got a lot of opportunities basically just by being among the best guys coming up through the open wheel ladder in the, in the States that was, was in fact an American and not, you know, somebody from South America or whatever else racing in the U S Um, and so I was, you know, I got lucky that I had a few sponsors that jumped on board pretty quickly. When I got to the Indy lights championship, you know, it was on TV. There was awesome prize money. You know, when I ended up racing for the Andretti's, we, you know, basically they, I guess, were willing to leverage the potential of accruing a lot of prize money over the course of the year to kind of subsidize my ride. So at no point was... I mean, nowadays you're having to, you're having to look for like seven figure sponsors before you ever even get to the promised land. Um, when I was coming up through it, it was just nothing like that because if you had all these kind of different factors that helped you counteract some of that craziness. So, um, yeah, I mean, just super fortunate to, to get to that point without having to shell out a lot of dough. And then I basically spent a year in racing purgatory sort of like I won the Indy lights championship about as handily as you could. So it really didn't make sense for me to go back and do that again. Like that just seemed risky. Like I come back and do this again and not win. And then what? Um, but there was no seats that opened up in the IndyCar championship that next season. So I did some sports car racing, did some other stuff. I like to call myself a free agent. I was just, you know, unemployed race car driver. Um, <laughs> free agent sounds cooler. It yeah. sounded better yeah. at the time. Um, and then, uh, you know, guy got hurt at Indianapolis that year. I filled in for a couple of races um, and then got hired full time by a different team, but kind of off the back of getting in the car, going pretty fast, um, you know, and, and being in the window. How does that work? Just jumping into an Indy car and hitting the track. Yeah, like the, it's the nerves uh, leading up to that. Like, that's kind of like the big stage, right? And yeah, I mean, at the, it's funny thinking back on it, though, that. I, I just kind of felt like I had the feeling that like I was the fucking guy at that point. Like I was the guy that sort of had earned that next spot that was going to open up. And so, and that coming off of racing for a really good team in Indy lights, I had driven the Indy car a couple of times for Andretti. There had kind of a, there was a thing during that period in IndyCar that um, if an IndyCar team gave an Indy Lights driver like half a day in the car for a test day, that their full one of their full-time guys would get an extra half a day. So there was kind of some incentive to give the young guys a shot in the car here and there. I ended up doing several days kind of because of that program. Um, the, the, proper, you know, def- the proper amount of confidence sometimes masks the nerves. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. And so I had like... I just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I felt, I felt ready for, I, I guess I knew I was as ready for it as I was going to be basically. And, and it just ended up turning out that the Indy lights car to the Indy car at that time, they were both built by Delara. They were both kind of designed around the same time. You were running on Firestone tires on both. 
Um, they had kind of similar powertrains. They were both just naturally aspirated V8s. So when I got in the, I mean, I remember the first few laps in the IndyCar the first time, you have a lot of those questions going through your mind of like, okay, is this just going to be super overwhelming or or whatever? And it basically just did, it did everything like the Indy Lights car, but a little better, kind of. And huh. so that first day that I spent in the car, um, you know, there was other IndyCar drivers that were there. We tested on the short course at Sebring. I was pretty immediate, like by lunchtime, I was just as fast as all the rest of the guys that were there. And you know, you're getting into the engineering program with the engineers. And, um, you know, as they say, you're kind of off to the races. I will say in stark contrast to that, sort of before I had driven an Indy car much, but had won the Indy Lights Championship, I went through that whole F1 simulator test, ended up getting the F1 test there. I mean, the difference between my one button on the steering wheel and getting in an F1 car that was... <laughs> like a supercomputer having to like figure out, I mean, it was not that different then than what you see now in terms of all the, I mean, you could like change the diff settings for entry mid corner and exit all on separate rotary switches <laughs> and like all this crazy shit. Um, those cars at that time, like the 2000, it was basically the 2010 spec car are close to as fast as the cars still are now. Uh, they were super, it was pre-hybrid, so they were super light, like little ultra nimble um, cars, but running on slicks instead of the groove tires and all that kind of stuff. Like that was a serious, like, you know, mind masher going and doing that. Like it was just so, ins you could not believe the level of performance that this thing had. You know, I'd known some guys that had, you know, had F1 to Scott Dixon, some other IndyCar guys had done a lot of F1 testing. I was just getting like, I'd like lucked into doing half a day for three days, um, you know, and they were all right when they basically said you, you, like half a half day for three days is not enough to even remotely like wrap your head around this thing, basically. Um, but it was, it certainly proved to be true when I got over there that just, I mean, the things were pulling, pulls like, five and a half or six G's Damn. in every direction. Like your neck is just, you could do all the neck exercises you want. And it's just smoked after like 10 laps. Um, you know, that, that was a really insane. I think the difference between an Indy car and an F1 car maybe now is not, is not quite as dramatic, but back then it just in terms of the tech was like, was that the day. first trip overseas to race was it, is F1 simulator? Or did you do any I had like, done, on track stuff? I had done there? a little bit of driving over there. I'd never been to the track that we did the test at in Spain, but um, I'd done a little bit of driving. So I guess, you know, the idea of just going over there and doing that was not totally foreign, but um, it was a lot to take in for sure. First race overseas was that same confidence that you're like, just like you were talking about getting in the Indy car, or was it kind of the like, shit, we got to show out for US, you know? It's a, it's a different, yeah, it's I, a different culture and it's a different, it's uh, definitely different, especially back then it was a different stigma on what your talent was based on where you came from. That was definitely true. Um, you know, the, the first time that I had raced over there was in the off season between 2005 and 2006. So I had been racing F2000 in the U S was going to race in the national championship in 2006 in that off season. I, I won a, sort of scholarship, which was called the Team USA scholarship that was for this reason, basically to get American guys to go 
a race overseas and expose them to all the differences that you, that you kind of alluded to. Just the, the style of racing is different. The competition's different. The the way they, the way the cars drive is different. Like, you know, you know, there's little things that actually make a big difference that all the way up and down the ladder for a long time, like the, you know, wheel diameter that cars in, in, um, you know, in Europe race on was smaller. So you have much taller sidewall on the tire that deflects a lot more gives you a totally different feel for the behavior of the car than you know in the u.s smaller sidewall and you know more of a radial feel um you know as opposed to kind of a more of a bias ply-ish vibe and so um i went over and did that uh in in 05 and you're literally literally driving a car that's like the livery is the stars and stripes. Like there's no way to hide that you're the American guy that's out there doing this. Um, and there was definitely a little bit, of, I, I felt a little bit of that pressure, like, okay, I got to go, yeah. you know, show up here for sure. Um, had a similar experience a few years after that. I think when I, when I was racing Indy lights, there was a series called the a one GP that went on for like, I don't know, four or five years or something. It was the, the, championship of nations or some sort of an Olympics style formula car thing that raced all over the world, mostly through kind of our winter, um, you know, but every nation had a team and, you know, you had some F1 guys and, you know, aces out of different parts of the motorsport world doing this in their off season. So you were, I mean, it's one thing to go over and race up against a bunch of other guys that are more or less at your level. It's another thing when you're on the way up and you're racing against like, you know, some dude that just got out of the, you know, Red Bull Junior F1 team, you know, is is coming and doing this. So I was actually the test driver uh, while Marco Andretti was the primary guy that was racing in that car, but ended up doing a couple of the races because he had, you know, some other commitments or whatever. And um, it's definitely, I mean, all of those things, I ended up doing well doing that. And it was actually a part of getting, I think, some more IndyCar tests on our side of the pond. I think that was that was the way that I began to look at all of those things is at a bare minimum, I, I may or may not be super impressing like these European teams enough that I'm just going to get cherry picked out of this group of guys to go start racing in Europe. But I can definitely impress the American teams that I'm already engaged with about what is probably my more likely route to becoming a pro doing this by doing well overseas. So, um, you know, it definitely functioned to do that along the way. It's crazy. I'm sitting here listening a little bit, a little, little off, but it's going to be something insulting. No, 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 no. (laughs) I mean, maybe Uh, we'll see. So like I, I, I born and raised in the South, right? I've lived a lot of places, but I'm from the South. I got a little bit of an accent. So when you're in the South growing up in the South, the only people you have to like, look down upon or say that they're more country or redneck than you is maybe another state right so being from alabama you're like well at least i'm not from at least i'm not from mississippi right at least we're not from louisiana then you come up to the midwest everybody in the midwest is like you guys in the south are fucking rednecks right you go out west to california california's like everybody except california is fucking rednecks right then you got a guy from (laughs) california if you're from the u.s and you go to europe Oh, you're a redneck. It doesn't matter where it doesn't matter where you're from in the United States. You're just it's so funny how you you step it back out. But in Europe, everyone's like, that's a a pretty good theory. It really is. It's everybody's got to look at another thing of like, well, at least we're not from there. You know, guys in Europe. I mean, there's something about those dudes. They're just a little bit fancier than us. You know, I do have a question, though. I've always wanted to know this Uh, or, or, you know, F1 enthusiasts. I wouldn't say, you know, 
uber fans or whatever, but watched and there's always times I'm watching I'm like, holy fucking shit. That's like kind of like we talk about the Isle of Man. We bring up the Isle of Man all the time where it's just like different. It's a different level, different just breed. Insane. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not human. It's not human. Right. And you look at guys, I mean, say Max Verstappen or some of these other guys that, that can perform at a level like that repeatedly. We look at it, obviously, have never even done, you know, a, a half a percent of anything that you've done racing wise. Do you look at that, some of that stuff, the same kind of way where you're like, holy fucking shit, how does he do that like that that often? Or is it is it a different kind of like, oh, put yeah, me, I can put see me in how, that fucking car. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know where, you know. Where your thought? I definitely like, take. I definitely take a swing in the Red Bull. If, if we're asking, <laughs> is it but, because? Is, um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot behind the scenes that go into yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting. You know, motorsports these days, it's the car is such a big part of the equation, and the cars are so fast that it's actually really hard. As I, I think, I mean, it's hard as somebody that knows everything about it to pick apart. Like, why is Max so much? You know, even just compared to his teammate, like where is he finding so much extra speed? What is what are what are we really what is it? What is any of this really saying about how good he is? Like it's hard to parse that um, outside of like the sector time doesn't really tell the whole story, right? And there was there was a time in racing where you know if you were watching F one in the seventies, you were just watching like Gilles Villeneuve coming fucking flat out and sideways through the corner, and it was like. It, it was it was much more apparent who had the whether, bigger balls whether you, or why whether it was yeah. fast or yeah. slow or whatever it was much more apparent like the style that different guys had and kind of the skill sets that different drivers had that was just and that was i mean that's true for every motorsport you know um we talk about this a lot within the industry which is like can we actually start designing we've all we've all sort of reached the the limit of how fast the cars can safely be driven on the tracks that we go to at this point, like Indy cars, NASCAR cars, F1 cars, you know, you could, you could easily design a car in any one of those spaces that would go faster than would could possibly be considered safe for a human to drive the thing. They've basically been going the same speed for like 20 years now. Uh, That's not because we don't have the ability to make them go faster. It's just because the insurance policies basically don't allow it to happen. Um, great. and so over that period of time, like the cars have gone away from, they become these precision instruments, right? Like they're super optimized aerodynamically. They're the power in a lot of, you know, certainly on the NASCAR and, and IndyCar side, the power has been turned down, um, as the most obvious way to keep speed in check. And so you kind of have this dynamic where it's like, all right. I mean, we talk about this, you know, with qualifying in Indianapolis, like it is without question, the absolute most insane thing that any of us do over the course of a year. Like you are on the ragged edge at, you know, you're bending into turn one at like 242 and a half, you know, and you don't know if the thing's going to stick and you got to hang on for four laps, you know, like it's just a, the car is trimmed out. Like you were using same set of tires that it'll take 35 laps to go through during the race. They are smoked like dust coming off of them after four laps in qualifying. Like it's just a, it's a completely insane thing. And anytime anybody from somewhere else comes and actually does it, they say the same thing, but we have the conversation in the, in the garage area, sometimes with our engineers, like guys that are in the industry watching, you know, the, 
watching somebody go out, run a lap, you know, for pole or whatever. And they're kind of even sitting there like, I don't know, that doesn't look that hard. Um, <laughs> and so I guess I, I say all that basically to say that, you know, within our version of the sport, I think we, you know, looking at F1, looking at Mac, guys like Max, Fernando, Lewis, you know, there's a few other guys, Leclerc, there's a few guys that you could definitely put into that, like truly elite driver category. It's a bummer that it's so hard to tell why they're elite. Um, That's- because I think that would, that would bring a lot more people into the fray. Like there's, we we're so focused on having close racing and all this kind of stuff, but it's like, I mean, I, I, I would say this and I, and this is no, uh, you know, I, I say this knowing that there are NASCAR guys that feel the same way about it, but like Daytona at this point, what skill is, are we really showcasing on restrictor plate rates races at this point? Like it's, it's certainly not pure driving skill. Cause we're not you know, on the like ragged it's not to anymore. say that there, it's not to say that there isn't skill involved in winning the Daytona 500, but it's not just like that kind of pure essence of driving the hell out of the thing. Like it, like it might've been for, you know, Petty and Earnhardt and sure. like all through these, through these other eras of the sport. So for Max, I think, unfortunately, because of the fact that we, we latch on to, well, the Red Bull is just so good. <laughs> he's probably underrated by most people. Like the things that he's, when you, when you know, I've had the benefit of talking to engineers that have worked with them and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, dude, he, he will do some things with the race car or do some things with a race car that just nobody else that we've ever seen can do those things. Um, so I, I definitely wouldn't, well, I would definitely, I definitely don't <laughs> underappreciate like what it's he's bringing to the table. Funny though, like you said, you know? so it's, there's not the visible to uh, a novice, somebody that's watching, to see why he's so fast. You didn't have a question of why Dale Senior was fast. Yeah, because he'd move you the fuck out of the way. He's hanging, right? He's half in you the can grass. Wa- you can watch sideways. it. Even modern day NASCAR, you look at Kyle Larson. You can tell why he's fast on some tracks. I mean, so you take the you know, yeah. restrictor plate. You can tell why he can put the race car. Some other guys maybe either physically can't or doesn't have, don't have the balls to. You know, you look at Jeff Gordon, whatever. He was very consistent and stayed the fuck out of trouble. But you look at Max. I mean, you're not talking about just he's consistently good. Like seven, eight, nine seconds. Like just no big deal. I'll make it up. That's yeah significant. I think that, you know, the mindset is, you know, I think the other part of it as a driver that, you know, you go through, you know, I've been whatever fortunate to, to call this a profession at a very high level for a long time. You know, those guys are doing it on a whole nother kind of playing field, if nothing else. Um, you know, we, we kind of experience the mental part of, you know, your approach to driving the car and all that kind of stuff a little bit differently since we do, you know, IndyCar is inclusive of oval racing and that's a totally different kind of psychological, emotional thing that you're bringing to the table than showing up at road course races every weekend. But the either way, you gain enough insight into like, I know how hard it is to make little adjustments and to get better on that side, but how important that is. Like that will make a bigger difference if you can kind of, if you can lock into like being in your zone a little deeper or a little better or a little more consistently or whatever, you know how huge of a difference that makes. Um, and so it's it's definitely interesting for us to then kind of 
try to extrapolate out a little bit like what are those guys doing and what's what's happening when you see these situations where a guy like Max, Max is, I think you pointed out very rightly, like he is one of the few guys that you can put him in a pretty serious jam and he just has this whole other gear <laughs> that he can go to and he can just start ripping the lap and it's just coming from out of nowhere in conditions that nobody else seems to be able to do it. Um, it's part of that is Tom Brady, like times five. Yeah, totally. You know, it's part of that is, you know, he's in a position. He also knows that he's in the best car. Like you mentioned earlier, just having that little bit of confidence can make up for a lot of other, you know, discrepancies. Like you, you can just get into hero mode, um, when you have that confidence and, and everything kind of mentally and emotionally falls into place a little easier when that's, when that's the case. But um, I think both from a physical skill perspective and a mental approach point of view, Max is at, he is among the top three guys. And at this point, it'd be hard pressed not to say that he is def, he is the most elite guy in the field from that perspective. Like, I think he's one of those guys you could stick in any car and he would just be the fastest guy in that car. No questions asked. You think so? I do. Any car? Well, I don't, I don't think he'd be the fastest Wait. driver overall. But I think you could stick him with any other teammate, basically, and he'd be the faster of the two. Hey, everybody. I'm Andy Stumpf, host of the Ironclad original Change Agents. For over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of change agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand, and then This Is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. I'm curious about the mental aspect. That's what always intrigues me is you can practice, obviously, you just run laps, right? The physical aspect of getting in tune with the race car, but preparing yourself and being able to, like, focus the depth perception, the reactions as quick as that stuff is happening, it blows my mind. Like, I mean, I'll be out, out on the highway just, like, driving a little spirit and, like, a couple, like, quick lane changes, and it's, like, you know, a little nerve-wracking, and, and you're, like... Maybe yeah, you're also texting and... Yeah, stereo. right. But I mean, multiple, <laughs> take that, take that from 80 miles an hour to 200 and 40. How do you prepare yourself? What's the training like for that to improve yourself in that aspect? Yeah. I mean, there's sort of, I guess there's like three layers to it. One is just strictly your physical training, you know, to be as, you know, fit basically to go do it as you can be, which the level for that is really high now. Cause the cars are, you know, you're like pulling fighter jet G's and, you know, in, in IndyCar, the cars still don't have power steering, so it's actually like a super physical thing. Um, the the second part of it you you alluded to, which is like your reaction time and kind of that also is is a is just like a physical thing that you can train. Like you can kind of train those skills up, right? And so there's a bunch of things that we do from different 
drills or you're working with a trainer and, you know, we work in these facilities that have, you know, you've probably seen these like crazy light boards that you're kind yeah, of trying to that. quickly, you know, follow the light and do all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of somewhere in between a physical and like mental thing. Um, you are training a physical, your physical reactions, but you're, it's, it's also just your, you know, mental reaction time that kind of sends all those signals. Right. Um, the third thing, which, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I think I probably didn't really start digging into certainly until I was already a pro, you know, like I already made it to the IndyCar series and was had a relative degree of success at that level. It was like at that point, then I started to realize like, okay, I can kind of tell the difference between when I'm really at my best and when I'm not quite at my best. And that as a pro, you know, for when you're when you're an amateur or you're coming up through the ranks and you're still figuring things out, the difference between you really being at your best and the diff and and really not being at your best might be like half a second a lap or something. When you get to the point that you're a pro, the difference is much smaller than that. Like, but but it feels way more exaggerated, you know, like you you really notice it in a different way because you're just you're so locked into every little nitty-gritty detail of where the lap time is coming from. And it's so close. Like in the IndyCar series on a road course, if you could find, if I just had a half a tenth of a second in my back pocket for my entire career, I'd have been like a 20 time race winner and racing for Roger Penske. You know, like it's huh. that much of a difference that separates the, the really, really elite greatest guys from a tier just below that, that, is is super volatile in terms of where you end up race to race. You might be you might be outside the top ten just because you don't have that half a tenth. Um, and so, but that that is some so for some guys that locking into that and being able to go throw that down, like get in that, get locked into that mindset and just go execute is super. Just comes totally naturally to them. Um, for me, I found getting into I was getting into this place where it was like a little hit or miss. Like I, I wasn't quite being able to just get there all the time. And, um, so I actually, I actually, and, and you're seeing more of this work, you know, guys working with, um, you know, mental coaches, I guess, of, of some variety. Yeah. yeah. Performance coach. That's the easy way to put it for sure. Um, that, uh, I found a, an ex pro baseball player that, um, we, we played baseball at the same high school. I actually got introduced to him through my high school baseball coach. They remained friends, um, that had had an experience like this buddy Bianca Lana, uh, played for the Kansas city Royals when they won the 85 world series. I think, um, he was a starting shortstop through the playoffs, like made his, made his way into the starting role coming into the playoffs that year. Um, and just had like an out of his mind world series like was, you know, played the best baseball of his life during that world series. They, they won the world series, but had kind of his own experience of not quite being able to like replicate that level of performance and, and yep. realized after, after his career kind of was over that, that it all just came down to this, not really being in having the right mental attitude and not really understanding exactly what that was. And, and recognizing that, just being totally aligned between your headspace and your body. There's like this thing that happens that you tap into your sort of body's 
inner intelligence in a way like these things that your body does just know how to automatically do if you let it like if you can free yourself of consciously thinking and worrying and and you know anticipating what's going to happen next and allow yourself to just sit back into that moment it's almost like finding a little bit of patience basically um is that completely mental or do you find that there's any other physical aspects that you can help you get there is that i mean is there do you replicate the same meal is that like a fighter no sex you know for a week before the race is that like a i'm going to get a certain amount of sleep a certain workout is there anything that can that you know physically that will help you get to that mental space you know some of those things definitely matter like getting great sleep you know, what you eat the night before, you know, all of those kinds of things, because they will affect just your body chemistry and and all that kind of stuff. But in some respects, the beautiful thing about the experience that I've had with it is most of it's just do the work and know, know where you need to get to understand that part of it, like be just practice replicating that mental space that you're trying to achieve. Um, You know, I've I've done that through a meditation practice, basically. So something that I can do without being at the track, I can do it whenever, you know, I can do it daily if I want, doesn't depend on me being able to have access to go get in a race car or whatever. And, and it's one of those things that, you know, it's because a part of the process is then really understanding, like, why am I even doing this in the first place? What, what am I trying to get out of this? You know, it like depends on, for me, the process has been, really getting to the root of why do I enjoy this? That'll what is take the you thing some dark that I places, enjoy man. about this? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, some... it, it will. It makes, you kind of got to be a little vulnerable to like allow yourself to go through some shit. To we're like going to see out, him pull but, off the track and be like, oh shit, um, he said, what am I doing this for a, anyway? Yeah, mental crisis, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's actually, it's been awesome for me and it's, and it's, uh, it's allowed me to unlock a little bit of that, like just keep it simple, get in the car, like, you know, qualifying at Indy, I brought that up before, but, you know, or, or race day at Indy, those are things that can be super stressful. You know, I mean, qualifying at the Speedway is almost just as much as, as the race, because you might not make the show, you know, you might not, you might, it's not just a matter of like where you start, but if there's 36 cars there, it's three people are going home. Um, you know, so just being out there at the wrong time of day or having some shit go wrong, like that could be your, your ticket home. Um, you know, that's something that I always actually looked forward to that because I just, I just loved actually doing it. Like I loved going out and qualifying. That was just something that I always liked to, to go do, but going through this kind of process really made me embrace the fact that it's like, okay, like once you, once you're sitting in the car and you're buckled in and you're going to go out there and do it, like. You are just that you are there to do the thing that you're there to do at that point. Like, and it's as simple as that. Like that was, that was actually a really beautiful and like freed me up of a lot of that anxiety that is, is hard to keep down, you know, um, those kinds of moments, which made a big difference. When you started talking baseball, I started thinking, I thought you were going to go there with the story. Conseco. No, Rick, Rick Vaughn, major league when he lost his fastball. Remember, <laughs> seeing that he comes back. You're going rookie the, of the year. Oh no, he comes back with the glasses, with the skulls and the cutoff sleeves. I thought that yeah. was going to be like kind of how you mentally I get back in it. Get, you think so? 
I, I, it's I just know. what popped in your head. Yeah, <laughs> he's got he's got the little That's bit a, of the uh, little rock star Vaughn. Yeah, could, yeah, I could knock yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I was going a little bit more NASCAR with that. Get size Ooh. shaves, little mullet. Ooh. Yeah, he's a little. I'm, he's a little I'm more. trying. I'm trying not to. I've got long hair. Don't have a mullet. We'll just we'll keep that straight. Speaking of NASCAR, how's uh, how's Larson going to do next year or this year in Indy? I think, you know, so Indy, it, one of the things that I think was going to be a real challenge for him was that we were supposed to introduce this hybrid system for this upcoming year. And they've, they've bailed on that prior to Indy. So I think that'll actually make things a lot more straightforward. Um, that car is going to be fast as hell. And I have, there are no, I, I think to say that. Dude, you can talk There's shit if of, you want to talk shit. I don't. We don't have no problem. No, I, no, I, like, I, I love Kyle, and I'm so stoked that he's coming to do it because I just love these kind of crossover, you know, things. I think it, it, in, in light of some of the things we talked about earlier about it just being kind of hard to see how good guys are in different yeah. stuff, an obvious way to showcase that is just go get in something different and go play in somebody else's sandbox and, like, see how you stack up. So. Um, it was something that used to happen a lot in motorsports. Doesn't happen that much anymore. You love to see it, and I'm super glad that he's going to be there. I, I think, you know, if we took Jimmy Johnson coming and doing it as a as a little bit of a template for what Kyle's going to go through. You know, Kyle's a lot younger. He's earlier in his earlier in his career. He's more in his kind of physical prime. I think that'll help him. He's he's done a lot. To be frank, he's just done a lot more stuff than Jimmy had up to that point, even so. You know, Kyle's going to be jumping into this thing, I think, just fresher and like more more ready for some different things, more ready to hang the thing out a little bit. Just so um, you guys know, he's Kyle Larson is going to be racing IndyCar at the Indy 500. So he's going to race 500 miles that morning, right? That afternoon, he's going to fly and he's going to do the Coke 600 that evening, right? So uh, Jimmy Johnson's done it. Uh, did Gordon do it? Jimmy didn't do the double. Jimmy didn't do the double. Um, didn't do the double, so he, he just did Indy. Tony Stewart did the and double? Tony did the double. Um, Robbie Gordon, Tony Stewart, Kurt Busch uh, have all, I mean, you know, recently, I, there was some, yeah. I, I don't I know, it's funny, like, like you know, Cale Yarborough ran Indy. There were some guys, like, back that have done back it, in the yeah. day that did it, but I don't think it was on the same day as Cole Cole 600 and on all that kind of stuff. So the recent guys are Tony, Robbie, and uh, and Kurt. Shit ton That's, of racing. I, so I go it's you know, I mean it's a crazy number of miles. I think the the best the best we were looking we were looking this up for some reason, but I think Tony Tony has the best like average finish basically between the two <laughs> races. He was like fifth in one and sixth in the other. Um, you know, I mean Kyle's going to be in equipment that could win both races. I think that I think the thing for him is just there's inevitably going to be some shit that happens during the race at Indy that is just impossible to like practice that much for taco and so bill. taco bill that's gonna be the fucking <laughs> that could be the deal breaker what do you mean taco he's bell? gonna have some taco bell yes. i don't think kyle's gonna have some he's taco just bell. he's yeah I, I think that's a how less could, did, how come from a pr him, standpoint that danica never did it i don't know that's a good question You'd have that seems like that sure. would have been an obvious thing Absolutely. for her to go do yeah i don't yes, think she, i don't think she did because she came back and did indie yeah, but I don't think she was running the, the stock car at that point. So, yeah. What's well, some anyway? It's yeah, it's it's a hell of a feat yeah. for sure. How hard is it to get out of one car and into another? I mean, not even same day, but just you just step in, out and then you step in. Okay. Oh, you mean physically? 
mentally like just getting so focused on driving one style and then jumping into something else and driving a complete different car that is going to be responding, reacting completely different. How do you, yeah, how I do mean, you make that transition and continue to? I'd feel like it'd be like taking a big old swig of what you thought was Coca-Cola and it ended up being like sweet tea. It just fucks you up because you think what it's fixing to be and it ends up being, oh, shit, I forgot this is a different car. they got to be completely different. I've always been impressed to the way like a, a race car driver can jump into damn near anything and drive it. Like we put, uh, what was his name that drove the Rampage Camaro? Mike Skeen jumped in and, uh, you know, total unproven car. I mean, fast. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Like, you know, a little hot rod that we built and dude is just yeah. ripping. And I'm like, whoa. Mike's it, good, man. It, it it took like it would take me days to get like acquainted with it to like even feel comfortable. Well, he like, t- he on touched on it at the very beginning that I think he puts a lot of weight on what I was going to ask about was there is the the talent. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a there's a God given right. talent. There's a yeah. born with talent that you can absolutely craft and curate further than some other guys through your training and stuff like that. But I was going to to your point is there a guy if you're not born with it. Can you train it into somebody? I think to a point, for sure. And and I guess I would say, I don't look at this as necessarily like a good thing, but the fact that the cars are so refined right now, that that I think takes a little bit of the emphasis in terms of performance off of just natural talent in a way. Like there's a little bit less, you know, you're... you're there's so much data. There's so much information. The cars are such precision instruments. Like you can kind of back your way into what the fast way around a place is just by like analyzing the hell out of it. In some sense, you will still see at the highest levels, you still see the best guys that are the most talented guys, you know, rise to the top. But I think there's, there's a, a level of like, and, and it's not to say that work ethic and all that shouldn't be worth something, but there's a level of that that I think it gets you a little farther now than maybe it would have in, you know, a bygone era where the cars are much more raw and you don't have quite as much information to be going off of. Like, you know, prior generations of the sport, I think were more dependent on just having that. Like, I don't, I don't have the split times on the dash. I just, I, I know I. F- because my feel it through my ass. Like I know where the limit of the car is and can just keep it there you know, for more of the lap than the other guys can. Um, it used to be a lot more seat of your pants driving and feeling it. I think and it, to, uh, yeah, just, it just together. naturally, you know, used to be that way. And so one of the areas where you see guys still excel at that is when they're bouncing around between different stuff, because you got to be able to just get in and like kind of figure it out. You know, you're not, you, you're, you, I think the, the thing that, that you probably you kind of mentioned it with Mike. So I actually I I've only raced against Mike once. Well, maybe we were we were probably in the same 24 hours of Daytona when I did that a few years ago, but um I raced really with Mike at Pikes Peak in 2017 running the Pikes Peak hill climb. Like he and I were in the same cl- category basically running these Porsche GT4 cars. Um so we were we were sort of competing against each other doing that and both of us with totally weird backgrounds to go and race it. Pikes Peak in a way, he's like a sports car ace. I was coming from racing Indy cars. Um, Travis Pastrana was another guy that was in our class that we That's were cool. racing against. So it was actually, it was really cool. But um, I've I immediately had a lot of respect for Mike doing that um, because he was super fast. And, um, you know, the, the three of us actually were 
just like neck and neck basically the whole time um, throughout the course of practice and qualifying and, and racing and all the rest of it. But um, you, th- I think the thing in my experience that you, it's like it, when, when I was coming up through the ranks, particularly I mentioned earlier that open wheel racing was kind of a mess at the time. Like the, 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 I don't know, like advice that guys like me were getting at that time were like, you have to be a super specialist if you're going to make it to be a pro doing this. Like you have to be super focused on open wheel if you're going to kind of get to the promised land because this whole, because the, the professional landscape at the top was all over the place. So it's going to like, there's going to be one guy every couple of years that actually comes out of the ladder that gets there. Um, and that I think I probably took that advice almost too literally, which was like, only do that. Um, and whereas if I was, so if I was to give my younger self some advice now, I'd be like, okay, well, have that be your main thing. But anytime somebody gives you an opportunity to go do something else, just go do it. Like nobody, you have all of this, you have this kind of notion that, and I think this is true across maybe a lot of professions or certainly within other sports or forms of motorsport. Like you have this kind of, I don't know, you, you, you develop a, a, a headspace that, oh, the, the person that I'm trying to impress along the open wheel ladder next, if I go do this other thing and suck at it, like that's going to somehow affect <laughs> what they think up, you know, or whatever, that's going to somehow impact my credibility or my credentials or you know, my reputation. And the reality of it is they're paying attention to what they're paying attention to that matters to them. They don't give a shit what you're doing off to the side. Like they probably are impressed that you're even giving it a whirl, you know? And I'd, so I'd, I'd maybe keep those tweets clean. Just <laughs> they, they care about that a lot. <laughs> so yeah. uh, to, to back to so Phil's in, question. In terms of the other things you go drive anyway, <laughs> I think. Uh, back to Phil's know. question. I want to know. So tables are, re- are reversed, right? You're racing IndyCar, right? You get a chance to get in Larson's car. You get three practice sessions in in a Hendrix car, and then you're going to run Indy 500, and you're going to do a duel in that day. How many laps does it take in that car at the Coke 600 for you to be like, "All right, I, I got this. I, I can. I know now. My ass is in tune with the tires, and I know where it's at." That's that's a tough question. I mean, I think I, I I'd like to think that that you get in and by the halfway point, at least that you're like, okay, I'm not just, I've got some level of, of comfort here with how to get around the place. And I understand how the track is evolving and I've followed Kyle Bush around for long enough to like have some sense of what's possible to do here with the car. I, I mean, I think doing that is frankly harder than what Kyle's going to be doing going the other direct Kyle Larson is going to be doing going the other direction because you know getting in a car that has more grip usually is just a little easier I think you know whereas for us getting in something that has a lot less grip it does every you know that stock car is going to do everything worse basically than an Indy car does it's got less tire it weighs more it's going to be less downforce you know all that kind of stuff so I, I think I think for an Indy car guy to do even the best Indy car guy to do the Coke, do the Coke Cole 600, I think they will finish worse than the best NASCAR guys huh. in good equipment going the other way. That would be my, well, the cool you know, part is both ways perspective like, on it, but all, all the there's Indy- a lot of challenges you got to face one way or the other. Like 
I think you're about to say. All the IndyCar drivers and all the NASCAR drivers, the cool thing about it is they're so open and understanding to like a new driver. They're going to be like welcoming, <laughs> you know? They're going to be like, oh, go ahead. Here's what you want to do. Yeah, it's a turn big one. safe space. Yeah, there's never a, like a, <laughs> guess what? Until you like qualify in the top 10 and then everybody's pissed, you know? And there's never a... Like, I, get this fucking guy out of here. I fucking love watching like that crossover thing. And I even watch, you know, in NASCAR, any of the rookies and whatever, there is no... We talk about it all the time. It's not bullying, but it's, you're not, nobody get, you don't get a trophy by participating, right? You got to go through the gauntlet. You got to work hard. Yeah. Right? And there, nobody's going to be like, guess what? New kid. Go ahead. You're taking me on the inside. <laughs> I'll move up. It's go ahead. Like super inclusive is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, 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 you got to work hard to be accepted. And it like he talked right. about, you got to do the work, do the work. Nothing wrong with it. No. So you come out of a precision instrument, right? A race car and, then in your free time, it appears as though... Where are you going? Where are you going? Which one? A race car. Okay. And it appears as though you jump into a 1960 Cadillac. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, which that's is, true. Which is fucking sick. Dude, I was stalking your Instagram just a little bit. What's that like? I mean, coming out of a car that's got the best steering response, like, in the history of, like, <laughs> automobiles... To the worst steering response in the history of automobiles. It's got bigger fins. That's, Air, arrow's probably yeah. equivalent. But, dude, so, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so, so sick. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I've gone through a little bit of a, I think people maybe have the expectation that race car drivers just, you know, want to be in some super fast streetcar. And the reality, I don't know, for, for me at least, you know, just nothing ever even comes close right to what the race car feels like like every every supercar you get in you toasted the brakes and the tires were smoked and whatever within like a couple laps on a racetrack of of really hanging the thing out so you know my the i'm i'm in the phase of my uh you know streetcar life and yeah you know, these things may always change where i'm like i just want cool drivers like i want something that i can get in and you know, I've had I've had some super cherry muscle cars and some other stuff like that. That even that, even something, you know, and that's not working any better than my Cadillac. I had I had this just bitching red on red um, SS three ninety six four speed sixty six Chevelle, and mm-hmm. and even that was kind of like it doesn't really do anything great, um, and it's just super nice. Like I'm stressed about putting miles on this thing. Like, I don't want somebody dinging it in the parking lot, like whatever. And so, um, I've gone kind of all the way, the other direction, which is I went and found this, this Cadillac, put it on bags, you know, it's redid the interior. So it's, it's nice. I mean, I drove that thing. It's just stock 390 stock, you know, high dramatic, you know, nothing crazy in terms of any of the rest of it. Um, still on drums, I mean, I drove that thing from Boulder, Colorado, pulled it out of storage, put some gas in it, drove it to Indianapolis for the 500, you know, drove it back you cool. know, along two days along I-70, both directions, like, you know, 2000 miles or whatever. Um, you know, if it like blows up on the side of the road, then just leave it. How who long? gives a shit? Like <laughs> throw a big block in it and like, How long you know, you whatever, the- like it's. How long have you had the caddy? I've had that. I've had the the six. So I also have a CTSV wagon. Um, so two caddies, but the um, 60. I've had the 60 Coupe de Ville since t- uh, 2013. 
Oh, so okay. like 10 years. Okay. A long time. Um, if he was so saying two years, I was going to be doing the math. He's got an eight-month-old. Big car. A lot of activities. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of activities yeah, in the old caddy. <laughs> trying to set him up. I was going to walk him into no the truck. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just, you know, I love that that car in particular. I mean, I love that era of yeah. – I, I grew up kind of in GM. You know, I, my dad had that 68 um, when I was growing up, and he's had a bunch of cool cars since he actually now he's his race car, he's still got that 68 Camaro, but he has, uh, this car is called the gray ghost. It was a 64 Pontiac Tempest that yeah. raced in the 1971 Trans Am series. So it was like a, you know, it's a totally cool story that the, you know, factory Pontiac guys basically were ready to go racing from 1970 into 71 GM shut the, shut the hose on factory racing, you know, that year. Um, they kind of had, had some backdoor budget that they could use and, as the story goes, basically the GM exact, the Pontiac execs just said, look, you guys can go racing, but you just can't use a Firebird because it'll look like it's a factory deal at that point. So, you know, Herb Adams, who's, you know, kind of legendary within the, you know, Pontiac engineering and design, um, you know, studios and, and, and teams or whatever through that whole, you know, through the eighties and, and everything else, he and his motley crew of, of Pontiac engineers, they were, as the story goes, they were at home at Herb's place looked outside the window, had this phone call, looked outside the window. Well, you know, my wife, Sandy's got this 64 Tempest. Like we could turn that into a race car. And so they, <laughs> you know, they pulled out Fucking all Sandy. the stops on this thing, right? Like, um, Sandy obliged and, uh, you know, they did all the crazy, like smoky eunuch shit on this thing that they were never going to get away with on a factory car, yeah. you know, basically. So it's this really, really badass. That's cool. Um, you know, Trans Am car that he's got, um, you know, and I've kind of gone through a little bit of the same thing. I had the Chevelle. I've got this, got the Cadillac. Um, I've got this, you know, four by four travel all. So I got a 67 travel all that's on a Chevy K30, um, you know, chassis and suspension and drivetrain. So it's 454 turbo 400, um, you know, the whole nine yards on that deal. And, uh, and then I've got a, I've got a 70 Camaro that I'm basically just firing up a build. You guys have my guy, uh, Eric Black on couple of weeks oh, ago so hell yeah eric and i have been uh dreaming been doing some up. tweaking on that thing oh, have to, you? to kick off a new project yeah sweet that's gonna be so, it's, it's got to be a little trans am inspired i'd imagine yeah definitely uh i mean for me those second gen camaros just don't get nearly enough love as being just great cars um, cool. you know from a racing heritage perspective like you know, in the Trans Am series, that's obviously where you would where where they would have been. Um, that you know, because the factory support got killed off, and you know, Penske's were running the Camaros sixty eight, sixty nine, and then last minute switched to AMC for the following year. So they they just didn't really have the on track success that I think would have made them more like of an iconic racing kind of thing. But they're just beautiful cars, like the chaparral camaro in particular to me is the one that's just like man you see from every angle the it's like it's super muscular with the flares and um you know you see you see one of those cars next to the any of the first gen cars you just tell it's like it should just be a way faster car they're way lower way wider stanced yep. much more muscular weight distribution's better um so that's definitely the the angle like 15s you know, keeping it super period correct in terms of aesthetic, um, but building in a little little modern storyline in terms of like why the rest of it is what it is. Um, I've actually got I've got this 
I've got a modern LS Copo 427 motor in the garage um, from a project that I was working on with GM kind of mid, mid 2000, you know, whatever, 2012, 13, 14, when those cars, the drag cars came out. Um, and so doing a little like ZL1 riff cool. on, uh, on that thing. Cause those, those LS Copo motors were, were uh, aluminum block. Who's motors building, when they who's first building came out. that thing? Are you building it? Yeah. I, I'm going to do a little like kind of mashup of, you know, it's like sort of a friends and family build, like some really good fabricators out here in Colorado that I've worked with on some other projects, um, but not running it through a shop, you know, kind of, and, and partially cause I, I want to keep it a little bit raw. Like I wanted to be a super minimalist build, like everything you want out of, from an experiential perspective. Um, but nothing, nothing that like shouldn't, nothing that wouldn't have been there in a race car, basically. Except, so, except maybe a roadster shop chassis probably needs a chassis. Hey, <laughs> maybe it probably. it probably does need a chassis. Probably I mean, that, that, that fits into the, uh, you know, what could have been, what would, what would you do if it, yeah, if you could do it now. So, yeah. uh, I'm doing it now, dude. I've got a 70 Trans Am that I've got the same kind of vibe going. Oh, badass. It's got a 15s on uh, like those Avon kind of historic race tires. Yeah, radios, hell yeah. That's, but they're just yeah. fat-ass 15s, and they look yeah. really Are you nasty. running mini lights, or what? what's the what's No, the I just got the factory Pontiac wheels. We widened oh, them in cool. the back. I just wanted it to look yeah. stock. I mean, mini lights would have been a natural fit for it, but it just it's like a sleeper. But you want a little more muscular stock looking. Yeah. Yep. I'm going away from mini lights too. There's this, uh, there's this kind of, I mean, I love, so with any of these kind of builds, like I just love, you know, even if it's sort of manufactured, like there being a story, like why, you know, why is this thing, what it helps me to kind of figure out, like, why do I want it to be whatever I want it to be? Um, so the, you know, the first influence for sure for me with that build is, is that Chaparral Camaro. Like that thing is just, you know, I'm going for that ivory white, like that kind of stance of those cars back in the day. It's just, I think this is true for almost any car ever. Like the racing versions of those cars are always just the sickest car versions of them. Like why mess with that? Basically, I actually, um, through some friends have access to the original factory bucks for the fender flares for the, like the wood bucks for the fender Uh, flares for those cars back then. So, you know, running steel fenders with all the original, you know, stuff. So the aesthetic is, is legit, but there was this other, Marrow during that era that raced in Europe, oddly enough, it raced in the, there was this Australian guy that, I mean, you know, they had the kind of what was the V8 supercars basically back then was Camaros and Mustangs. And they, they look a little more wild basically than any of the Trans Am cars were like the rules were just a little more flexible. And so they had a little crazier kind of stuff going on. The engines were bigger. Um, This guy, Frank Gardner came from that era or from that, you know, series in Australia um, and raced in the European Touring Car Championship in 1974 with a early gen, like a 73 spec uh, Camaro. And so, I mean, you can imagine he's racing against Ford Capris and BMW three liter SLs and, you know, this crazy giant, you know, almost like IMSA style Camaro, like had super wide body shit going on, all this kind of stuff. But um, the tie in for me was not only that, that was just a badass just so out of place, but so cool that this thing was racing at like Spa and Monza and whatever in it. Like if it ever even made it to qualifying without blowing up, it was like a huge success for these guys. So it was not a successful car by any stretch of the imagination, but because the rules were more open, they called it uh, like a second gen ZL1. So they raced with uh, aluminum 427, big block 427. 
that was a derivative of, you know, the Can-Am motors and the motors that were in the, you know, um, 69 Camaro and VET ZL1 cars. Um, and, and because it was, because the rules were more lax and this guy, Frank Gardner also raced Lola T70s, they ran on Lola T70 center lock mags, um, which were, which were also 15s, but these super deep, you know, deep offset center locks, a six spoke mag and, you know, one piece forged mags. Um, so I've tracked down some guys that make that wheel now. That's and that's, cool. so that's my little wheel riff is Hell yeah. since I've got the 420, the aluminum 427 in the thing anyway, and, uh, you know, go, go hunt down some of those Lola mags just to make it so that if I went park this thing next to the Chaparral card, like look a little different, at least, you know, do you think there was any like focus on aesthetics back then? We always like talk about that because it's like, it's so difficult to like try to consciously go into a car build like that and achieve the cool factor as though you didn't care. Like you were just like back then it's like, it was so damn cool. Like you think when they did like the Sunoco Camaro, like yes. the six, were they looking at that and being like, let's make this so bitch and yeah, they did. like style the hell out of it. Or were they like, <laughs> hell yeah, they did. Yeah. I mean, they so? got pin, they got, they, I mean, you've seen the pinstriping on those things. Like they definitely paid attention to did the, They had to best the looking car awards <sighs> in the sixties racetracks. Really? Oh yeah. You'd get a trophy before the fucking race right. started for the best looking car. They, I always thought I do think, I was just going to say, I, I do think though that, you know, we talk about this a lot, like in the modern context of cars, like, you know, whatever there's so much so much just like extra stuff you know that that kind of factors into the look and feel of all these things that i think it's it's why i think that the the racing versions of all of these things are are should should really be the starting point for like any hot rod that it's like they end up looking the way that they do because the form follows the function yeah. right like yeah they've they've ended up with that super muscular fender flare because tires that's <laughs> just how they fit the exactly. tire inside that was the the way that they extracted the most out of the regulations yeah. you know and that that's that's still the case today for every race car that's out there like you know the racing development mule for every car is like the sickest version of that car that you could possibly ever see you know and i think it's just for that reason like they just look badass when they're all raw materials and bare carbon and you just get to see the thing in its most like primal state kind of. And yes. so I think that's where I'm at with any old car build is like, if there was a race car, if they ever made this thing into a race car, start with that. And like, you know, work, work your way back into making it kind of a street car to whatever, yeah. you know, degree you want. Think about how many more Tauruses they would have sold if it would have looked like the SHO. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did the SHO. The SHO, they sold a lot of this. Yeah, but it didn't look like a NASCAR. <laughs> We've come full circle with our like car building to to that kind of style. That I just I love that raw nasty look. We're just starting yeah. a '68 Camaro right now, and the whole theme is just that. It's like yeah, you know the like the forms following the function. It's it, it needs fender flares because it's got huge ass tires on it. Is it cool? Well, I think you know, and and there's so much of like. You know the the brake package that you can put inside of a 15 inch wheel now is yeah awesome yep like you don't need you know all all of these I don't know to me I'm I'm like a I could I could definitely get on the soapbox on this but 
you know, the, the, a lot of the reasons why over time, you know, we put bigger wheels and bigger tires and done some of these things that aren't period correct, basically, or have been for good reason in some respects, because the technology wasn't really good enough to make the cars work best in a period correct sort of way. But the reality of it is like, now they can. I mean, you know, modern Trans Am cars, like the cars that are racing in the contemporary Trans Am car, Trans Am series run on a 15 inch wheel. Like I'm just going to go to PFC and get calipers and rotors and see if they'll, you know, maybe see if they'll anodize them a different color. So they look a little more vintage or something, but um, you know, all that stuff's ready to rock and roll. So I think, I think that, that to me is the exciting thing about any, you know, four by four builds, like all this kind of stuff is what's available just off the shelf lets you lets you really get the aesthetic. You're not hampered by needing to modernize a lot of this stuff from an aesthetic point of view. I don't think I don't, you guys, you guys, I'm sure have a much better feel for that than I do, but it seems like that's the case. You're right. For sure. As a dude, who's obviously like a huge gearhead. You must be digging the fact that like your Rolodex now allows you to like reach out and to the baddest facilitate (laughs) the car you want to build. Right. Because yeah, you know, rewind like, 15, 20 years, you, you probably couldn't get those brakes, right? Like, no, like definitely not. Shit. What is, um, what can I get from summit 15? And Oh shit. There's a Willwood like four piston. That is going to suck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, and I've been there. I mean, I, you know, I had a, I had, I, I drove my, I learned how to drive a stick on a 95 firebird trans am. That was my dad's at the time. And, you know, we did a little kind of like father, son, build on that thing, like built out a, you know, 396, uh, LT one, you know, the, the nineties LT ones. Yeah. The thing wasn't um, a WS six, you know, was it? Oh, it wasn't. Mine was not a W it was trans, but it w- wasn't a WS six. You don't Nasty fuck with the WS six in the street back in the day. <laughs> this thing was like a pretty serious, you know, like this thing was definitely for what it was with built motor in it and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. It had it not been for that fucking opti spark on that thing. <laughs> so um, we had to send the chip you know, we would have program. Yep, right? We would have been. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Like between how far everything has come since then and thankfully having a lot more hookups now than I did, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, back when I was 17. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun to think about these things for sure. Well, dude, it, you honestly, I mean, cart racing background, indie light, indie car, I mean, absolutely need for speed, right? You've, we've talked about the aerodynamics of the 60 uh Cadillac you've got a CTSV I mean you you comes. I mean natural progression for the 2003 Montero like <laughs> where did the yeah. Mitsubishi Montero come in and that's it's not um, like a I'm making a new car purchase I went and searched out a 20 year old Mitsubishi Montero you're sounding a little bit like my wife right now. I'm no, totally <laughs> um, she. Oh, I love it. That's probably the worst. That's the worst shot said, that I fucking had. She said, "These, this is my criteria for a new. You know, I need a new car. We got a little one in the house. We got a dog. We need to be able to get around. I uh, need a little more cabin space. Um, you know, the you know something that." you know, maybe has three rows, um, gotta have heated seats, gotta have, you know, so kind of like had this list of list of things. And so you're thinking, all right, we'll go hunt around for whatever new, we'll go, go down to the Subaru dealership. We'll go check out the Honda pilot. Like, I don't know, whatever. 
these things don't seem super exciting to me, but I'm also, I'm okay with having something in the stable. That's just a completely practical car that, that doesn't stress me out at all. Um, but you know, then you start kind of looking around and I, I, I made the mistake probably of throwing this out to my Instagram followers of like, okay, here's my criteria. Here's what I want out of this thing. Like throw me some ideas. And then in my Instagram followers are, uh, you know, I may not have like the most insane Instagram following, but the, the people that do follow me are a lot of them are within industry that are always keen to fire off in the replies. So I got just like this insane, you know, dump of, you know, what I should be going to look at. And it, from industry professionals within motorsport, of course, you know, they're like Dieselgate Cayenne, uh, you know, Toyota Land Cruisers, like here, my buddy has this thing and he's selling it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I got, you know, sort of sucked into going down the rabbit hole on, uh, you know, well, what's, what's like used that does that might make sense. There is an element to all of this stuff that like are, there's a lot of cars from like 20 years ago that if they just made them made a brand new version of that car. Now I'd buy it over anything that's currently oh, on the market. Absolutely. Right. Like I don't want all this bullshit. Like I don't want giant screens in my car. Like where I I'd want some real oh, knobs. Yeah. I don't care about Dude, if Ford would bring the probe back either. right now. I'd buy a new probe GT today. Give me a probe. Give me a Taurus SHO. <laughs> Dude, I gotta um, I gotta tell you, I'm I'm shocked for an indie car guy looking for a, a vehicle for your wife and he child. He hasn't popped it yet. He hasn't popped it yet. So well that you totally overlooked the Previa. I mean it's basically a supercar. <laughs> <right? laughs> yeah. Mid engine? I mean it's five speed turbo. It, it, that, right? That didn't factor into my, you know, <laughs> spreadsheet on this, but, um, so where did you, how did you land on this? So I landed on this because I basically just convinced myself that buying a used vehicle was a, a real used vehicle, not like a certified pre-owned vehicle was, was like a, a viable option here. <laughs> Maybe even a good idea, which I'm not sure my wife agrees with, but, um, and, and I liked the idea of, well, I'll just, I'll just cut it to you straight. I liked the idea of, uh, I liked the idea of the entire stable of cars in our driveway being completely ridiculous. <laughs> and, um, and I liked the idea of, of buying a car that was like something that was designed to go 200,000 miles. Basically. I, I'm going to, I'm going to read everybody the caption when I, when I pop it up here on the screen. But first of all, I, okay. I'm going to say that I think he liked the idea of the fact of having more money because he's building a project car. I think <laughs> that he liked that idea the most. So here and it is. Now I can't let Kristen listen to this podcast. <laughs> so thanks so, for that. Uh, right here, the 2003 Mitsubishi Montero. When your wife tasks you with figuring out what a good replacement for her daily driver is, you go with the 12-time Dakar Rally winning Mitsubishi Montero, right? Isn't that the most logical choice? I think that an obscure fact about an, a car is pushing it a little bit. That's like when anybody's like, oh, you realize that that was the 14-time car and driver mid-size hatchback of the year winner. That's the, cla Power best That's the classic race on the Sunday. The Power Associates Award for the best window roller up. Classic race yeah. on Sunday, sell on Monday scenario, right? Oh. Um, so the, the story behind this particular car is that a friend of mine owns it, owned it. And he's a down in Denver. He works at this place called Blue Chip, which is, which is this awesome, you know, restoration spot down there, mostly for more modern stuff. But he's like a certified factory trained Ferrari mechanic. 
um, has had a bunch of badass four by fours over the years. So I was kind of, I was, you know, like the idea of honestly, the idea of going and finding a, you know, land land cruiser or, uh, you know, left Lexus LX 570 or something like that was kind of where my head was at. Like, I'm going to go see if like, there's even something like this out there. Everyone's doing this popped up. It's totally legit. And, uh, felt good about, you know, having something that had the mileage on it and that kind of stuff, because I know the guy that, that built it. And he's just like a super pro, like he's, you know, done, done it. Like this thing is as good as new as like, it could kind of possibly be. And, uh, and so it's an experiment, I'd say it's an experiment to see, uh, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to get a little ride height out of it. Um, my wife's, my wife's five foot and like, you know, just getting in the door is kind of a jump for, uh, for where we're at with it right now. But, um, it's actually, I mean, first time driving this thing, I was like, okay, well I'm keeping it. If, uh, if we, it, whether or not this ends up being a viable daily for, uh, I love it. for my wife. Hey. So we'll, we'll see. She's, she's been an incredible sport about it, which, uh, thankfully this has not become a, you know, a, a, a an experiment for our marriage. It's just an experiment <laughs> about whether or not we that, that is, you know, can kind of deal maybe, with having a crazy car. Maybe this is the new badass thing. I mean, Jesse James comes out and owns it with his Santa Cruz and says it's the most badass, you know, vehicle yeah. that he's owned. Uh, I mean, before I married my wife, I got her at 88 LeBaron, 89, maybe. I mean, that's, that's a fucking high end. How many times did it win the Dakar? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd, no, I never I'd did. assume zero. Right? Yeah. That's 12 times the car. That's a huge selling point, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. That made a huge impact on whether my wife cares about this car I or not. I, I just want everybody to know that. She was like, oh, no way. Okay, great. Sweet. Yeah. Is she like using that in her circle of friends now? Yeah, that's oh. how she describes it to everybody that, yeah. she, that she, you know, her, her mom, when her mom called and was asking why JR has this ridiculous car on Instagram that's like, you know, lifted a foot off the ground and has a snorkel for her daily. I uh, to drive to and from, you know, the hospital. She's a nurse. That's a huge um, flex at the friends, though, when they're having like wine at the afternoon or whatever. Oh, I mean, you know, my husband's an IndyCar driver. I mean, did your husband buy you a twelve-time Dakar winning? <laughs> it's, it's um, I'm, I'm sure that we're a little ways outside the normal realm of those kinds of conversations. Just in general, we have like an ambiguous number of cars in the driveway right now, anyway. So, um, yeah, it's it's just you know. Well, I know, just how you get. I know it. you got to go. We got to ask a couple of the standard questions, but we will ask the question that I'm super interested in. We bring it up all the time. It's not our standard question, but we talk about it all the time. You got a wife, you got a uh, young I was daughter. Thinking the same thing, dude. right? So you run in different circles, right? And the wives they always have the friend that has a husband. We're gonna go out to dinner. You're gonna love him. He's super into cars, right? He also has done a little. So yeah, I mean, you're laughing right now because you know exactly those. I want to take me through that process. There had to be a time that you're like, oh man, this is, <laughs> yeah. Fucking shit. You, we, we have to deal with it, right? We've dealt with it for, you know, yeah. 20, oh, 20 dude, something I'm years. Sure. And it's always been like the, yeah, sure. Just, and it's always, you, you have, you're nice. You have the dinner. You're right. You, you do the appetizers or everybody. What, what do you do? What do you do? And it's always like, oh, just like on TV. Yeah, exactly. Like you see on TV. Same, same exact thing. Let's just cut right. Yeah. To the, what that you tell me more about what you do. I'm sure that those have been some fun ones with you. Fun would be one word uh, <laughs> to describe them. Yeah. The, uh, 
there 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 i would say a prereq is alcohol is a requirement of course um <laughs> in those situations um the uh there's so there's definitely been some day drink day drinking uh you know un, unscheduled day drinking for for those kinds of meet and greets but the uh dude i mean it's all the same shit like yeah it's like, oh, well, you know, I've got a Cobra. It's like, oh, no, you've got a Mustang Cobra. Like, that's, you know, that's different. Um, What's the fastest you've ever been in a car? You know, yeah. Well, and stuff like that, you know, people ask. I get, you know, you get reasonable questions, but, you you know, it's like for what we're doing. Well, for the biggest, the biggest thing that I get is, oh, so I heard you race NASCAR, you know, so that's just kind of one of those, like, it just gets under your skin a little bit. Like, yeah. no, 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 IndyCar. Oh, right, NASCAR. Oh. No, 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 IndyCar. Like, you know, the Indy 500 is like, oh, yeah, do you do the Daytona 500? Too? Oh, my like, wife told me you were on your third job. That's cool. Yeah, it's definitely. So so that's kind of a thing. Um, you know, the, the it's honestly, it's worse. The car part of it, I think, is worse. Like when yeah. somebody thinks you're a car guy. Oh, yeah. Because that's just, there's such a... Most of the time, honestly, when, you know, somebody who, you know, is race car, you know, they find out you're a race car driver, um, like they just don't even know where to go with that kind of a lot of the time. So, so that ends up kind of being like, okay, either you're actually interested in it and you, or, you know, now you get a little bit of the drive to survive thing, like, oh, like, you know, drive to survive. And so you got to pick through that a little bit, like, oh yeah, kind of, you know, it's sort of like that, but here, let me just show you a picture on my phone. Um, the car guy thing, but though, is worse. The car guy thing, I think, is worse. <laughs> You're right. For sure. It, you, you are right. You get, because that is a clinger. You get stuck in the corner. It's like just just off in the kitchen, like just outside the refrigerator. Yeah. And you are stuck there with that dude. And he's got a, it's like a 72442. Or a cutlass. It's a cutlass, <laughs> it's with, a cutlass. A, it's a cutlass with a 442 hood. Right? Hey, the thing is, yeah. is we, as, as a car community, as a whole, all the way back out into space looking at it right it is an inclusive environment right but when you when you zoom in the car culture itself (laughs) is so diverse right and at the same time if you don't mac uh like mesh perfectly with interest and stuff like that just because you're into cars doesn't mean you're going to have similar interest about cars. You might have similar interest about all kinds of other things. We don't have to specifically talk about cars. I have a great example for this, right? And this is, this is applicable to this conversation because I've got my son's skateboards. Okay. And that, that's like the thing that we, we do. So me and my wife go out and I meet like the other skateboard parents. Right. And I'm looking at this one dude and I'm like, I fucking know that guy. And my son is like skateboarding with his, his son. Yeah, they're 12 years old and he's looking at me and I can tell he's looking at me like, I know that dude. Well, I know him because he's on fucking TV, right? He's got a goddamn car show, right? And so we're, we, we see each other like 10 or 15 times before the two of us are like, (laughs) what's up, dude? And he's like, what's up, man? (laughs) We shake hands and he's like, from the roadster shop, right? I'm like, yeah, you're that Bob Blade dude, right? It's like, yeah. Like you got that roadster, don't you? Yeah. You guys do some cool chassis. Yeah. That was the extent of the conversation. <laughs> Ever so, we see each other like once a week. We never speak of cars. That's the best best relationship like, there could ever be. Oh, it is. It'll be like, <laughs> yeah, straight up. It, it, we see. I'm like, what's up, dude? We shake hands, and that's yeah. like, yep. But it's the fucking dude that's got like the, you know, the off the wall car that you just you don't want to hear about it, and it just goes on. And it has. On it's and nothing on to do it. Like we'll have a conversation. Let's talk about all kinds of other things. Let's talk about things 
that we maybe disagree on, but we could at least have a conversation on. Let's talk about music. Let's talk about all kinds of other stuff, but I don't want to hear about your stupid ass project. <laughs> That's the thing I don't want to hear about. And they never have a project. Well, it's this. It's, it's, it's a story. It's a thing. I've got this one. I'm driving on Porsche it. box. Yeah, car. I'm super into cars. You realize this one was a J. This one was twelve time Dakar Rally winner. <laughs> it, nobody's making, just for the record. I didn't bring that up. Okay. <laughs> nobody's making themselves very approachable here. So let's. Yeah. yeah well, we're all. This anyway. is nobody's listening less anymore. <laughs> uh, best piece of advice you've ever received. Oh man. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I've been told that before. Thank you. I can imagine. <laughs> um, best piece of advice I've ever received. Don't go to MIT. It worked out pretty good. Nobody gave me that advice. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably best piece of advice I ever received, but, but didn't take action on was you should just go to MIT. Like what the hell are you doing? Um, no, I mean, you know, it's it's a little cliche, but I, I think, you know, as I've as I've gotten older and gotten deeper into my career and and you start to, you know, come into your own a little bit more, um, you know, is 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 basically just that you you have to understand for yourself, like what it is that you really want to do and like what you want to get out of the experience of the thing that you've chosen to do and like that you're putting your energy into. Like, I think I got sucked in as a, as a professional race car driver at times to being sort of enamored with some of the other parts of it. And like, and you get really attached to the performance at the end of the weekend, like where you actually stacked up and all of those things. And it's like, it took me going through some shit as a race car driver and going through some, you know, having the experience of, that not always going well and, and being attached to it and having that really affect, you know, what I was like away from the track at times, like you get really hung up on, you know, we just did shitty this weekend or, or whatever weekend to weekend. Um, and so I guess just, you know, recognizing that really the, the, the enjoyment that I'm getting out of this, what I'm extracting out of this experience is really just attached to whether or not, I do my best work when I have the opportunity to do that and, and focusing on that as the thing that that's what I'm going to work on. Like, I'm not necessarily, I'm not going to look at this as I've got to go run the fastest lap time. I'm going to look at this as I've got to go get the most out of myself when I get out track today. And that, that not only was like a huge, as, as simple as that seems, that was a huge shift in, just my whole approach and like attitude about doing the thing that I was doing. Um, but it enabled me to completely disassociate from all of the things that I'm not in control of, you know, that end up affecting where you end up at the end of a race weekend or, or whatever else. So that, that to me was like, like if there was something that I wish I had known to do earlier in my career that I think would have allowed me to get even more out of it, that's it. Looking good. Cool. Really good. First car that you ever had and a story about that car. 95 Firebird Trans Am. Kind of stole it from my dad. Um, Hold on. Yeah, I was in high school. So don't tell us the color. 95. So I graduated in 98. 
WS6s, the, the worst ones were the white ones. Then you had the black and the dark blue. Hello. He had the dark blue. That's what I thought. That was what you had the dark blue. Black. 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 I I saw it as dark blue as well. Um, You know, like, so we had, so I had that thing. I was, so I, it was, you know, it was a car that I learned how to drive a stick shift in because I had to go drive a race car when I was like 15 or whatever. And so drove that thing to learn how to drive a stick. How'd you like that skip shift? How'd you like that skip shift? (laughs) We had this, we had the skip shift delete. Oh, did you? All right, good. We were started on that. Um, Still over-rev the shit out of it, going that two-three shift a few times, just jamming it back into first when yeah. I was like first figuring <laughs> the whole thing out. But because um, of course you just drive, I, I was racing go karts at that point, so I just drove the thing like a race car. I was like revving it to six grand every time I shifted anywhere, just driving around town or whatever. Um, but man, we, I never wrecked it. Like never got in. You know, I, that was probably that was probably part of my dad realizing that I actually had some talent was just never wrecking the Firebird. Um, but that's uh, oh man, we got into some serious shit in that thing. <laughs> Have you ever had a like, better drifting vehicle since go. then? <laughs> that's the best drift vehicle that ever was yeah. made. Phil, CTSV wagon, dude. Like, really? It is yeah, super legit because <laughs> it's long, like long wheelbase. You, hang it's, out you know, you got good weight distribution, a uh, little more, a little more oomph. Uh, you know, it's been tuned up tab, <laughs> so that helps. At LSA, but, is that, uh, LSA or? that car, that car was a great drift car. And that was also at the peak of like, when I was driving that thing, it was like peak formula D, you know, I mean, I knew a bunch of those guys cause they practiced up at Sears point, you know, Tyler McQuarrie and I don't know, a bunch of dudes that were racing race formula drift at that time. So, um, yeah, there was, I went through a lot of rear tires, factory and, uh, wheels or torque thrust on it. No, not torque thrust. We ran. I ran a Seven. better though. I just ran Fixie. spray canned, spray canned factories for a while, and then uh, when we did the, when we when we you know re, we built a new motor. For, I blew the motor up in it. Shocker, right. of course. Um, we you know rebuilt this, built this LT one, and kind of did like a a light upgrade on the whole car. You know, bigger bars and bigger brakes and that kind of stuff. We put those uh, like the ZR one vet wheels on yeah. it yep. after that so you know maybe not my finest hour from a uh you know design choice perspective but they, they looked the part at the time exactly uh where are we at now uh best car movie and why <laughs> i mean car movie is is kind of a tricky one i would say i, I my my head immediately goes to racing movies Lamar for me is just like the, the go-to, you know, it's as much as it's not exactly, you know, true or, you know, it's, it's fiction as much as, as much as anything else, much more so than rush or, uh, you know, any of the more, more modern stuff or versus Ferrari, that kind of stuff. But I think just, it's just slow moving. It's like, it's like a real old movie, you know, and, and with McQueen and knowing, knowing the backstory of how they made the movie back then, like they actually raced a car in those wreck. McQueen was actually driving the car in some of those races to get the nose cam, you know, on the Porsche 908 to capture a lot of the action that they did. I think that's, it's just such a quintessential, you know, motorsport. I don't know, motorsport flick. Like I always, and the, the I, I will say with the only caveat that the, the opening scene to Grand Prix 
to me is like the the starting sequence of of Grand Prix is just like so insane when they've got the the split screens and it's the exhaust firing and it's kind of all to the percussive like you know note of the of the of the music like it's like those two to me video pop art in a way are the ones yeah 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 uh last but not least i'm going a little rogue a little wild card i wrote this down i saved it for last so if you don't want to answer this it's it's too personal no problem we'll edit this out You talked about earlier, you, you reach a place of zen, right? You're, you've got to center yourself. You ask yourself the question, why are you doing what you're doing? What's the answer? What do you tell yourself when you're doing it, why you're doing what you're doing? I'm very interested to know. It's because, like, doing doing this thing that I've done for this long with sort of the, you know, not to use this word, lightly, but you, you know, you develop whatever your level is, you kind of a a degree of mastery doing like the thing that you have set out to do for a long period of time that when you can get yourself in the place that you're really experiencing that level of like, I am just a hundred percent one with the environment, this moment, like this thing that I'm doing, I'm a hundred percent just you know, experiencing this moment just as it's happening. Like I'm not, I'm not tied up in something that happened like a couple of seconds ago. I'm not anticipating what's coming next at all. I'm just experiencing it all like right here, right now. And I think, you know, you, you could experience that. I mean, I was working with a baseball, a professional baseball player to understand some of this stuff. Like this is a feeling I think you can experience doing, you could be in a boardroom and have this experience. You guys could be, you could build in a car and have this experience or, or, or whatever. Um, but for me, it's like to do the thing that I'm super passionate about and that really physically, like, you know, it's, it's a physical task. It kind of gets my juices flowing from that perspective. Um, there's just nothing else that I have that total alignment and, and in the moment feeling like there's, there's sort of just this absolute freedom that you get to by being in that moment that just nothing else is even on your radar. Like nothing else matters at all. You completely free yourself of like every, everything you could possibly be concerned about, worried about what's going on in the world, like, you know, going on in your life, whatever. Um, and so it's, it's to, it's to get to that feeling, um, that, that for me, like, driving the race car and doing it at a really high level and being in those challenging circumstances that are really high stress. It's where you, it's where you get the most out of, or where I get the most out of like being in that mode. Now that you've learned that and you've got the muscle memory, can you, can you get yourself there quicker and easier in every race? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you can recognize like really quickly when you're not there too. So like, okay, now I've, I got to like work some tools here to get back backing it instead of, you know, a lot of, you know, there've been other times where you kind of don't, you know, you're not quite aware of it. So you don't quite realize that you're, that you're in a rush, you know, you're like driving. It's, and it's funny. It's like you, you're from the outside, you are in a rush. Like you're every 10th of a second counts and you're trying to get to the next thing as fast as you can. But if you, if you're in the mindset of thinking about it that way, then you're always anticipating something that you don't, you're not really in control of. And so you just get out of sequence, like out of phase with, 
no, no, you got to be like locked into just where the car is right now, what you're doing with it right now. And, and yeah, you know, build those moments together basically to create the, you know, perfect lap. If that's a thing, if that's a thing that exists, but I think it's um, awesome. I think even for, for everybody listening that doesn't race cars, cause I mean, obviously believe it or not, most of the guys listening aren't professional race car drivers. I know it's hard to believe, <laughs> uh, but I mean, no matter what life throws your way, if you can, if you can learn the space you want to be in and then identify when you get outside that space, you can get yourself back inside that space faster. I mean, your shit's thrown your way all the time. I mean, it may be a bad fucking pit stop, but if you know that as soon as you get pissed off after that or whatever, and you're blaming all these other things, you can get yourself back into the zone that you need to be in. I think it's, I think it's vital for everybody. It's been fucking awesome, man. I know we've already established that your wife's not listening anymore because we found out the true reason of the Mitsubishi. <laughs> I'm telling you what, in the last probably three or four months, your name has come up probably two dozen times. It really has. You guys need to have yeah. J.R. Hilda. You, ah. you have J. And yeah. honestly, it's a lot in the female crowd. A lot of uh, Sarah, Sarah uh, Lassick from uh, Aeromotive. I yep. mean, Courtney Hansen. I mean, yeah, getting texts all the time. Lassick. Hey, you need you need to have J.R. Hound. You need to have J.R. Hound. You're not helping the whole wife situation right now. I said yeah. she's not listening. We established that. Yeah. He's a yeah, he's a good looking dude. He's got long hair. He's a race car That's driver. All good. Yeah. All good. That's what it is. Montero. Uh, we need to do this again. I got, we got to figure out a segment. Maybe it's Motorsport Mondays. I don't know what it's going to be or whatever. But I mean, seriously, it's been a fucking awesome. We had no idea what to expect. We have all kinds of guests. We've been doing this for a couple seasons now, and it's been really good. It's been a blast, dude. We appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Dude, same. So awesome. I'd be happy to do it. Happy to do it. Happy, happy, happy to do it next week if you guys want to do it again. So. Let's fucking do it. If you need um, a chassis, let us let me know. Uh, you know how to get in touch with us, and uh, maybe we'll come down and check you out in Indy. It's only three hours away. Let's go down to fucking Indy 500. Yeah, you guys got Let's to. You're up in Mundelein, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah. when I raced in 2007, there was a race team in Mundelein, Illinois, uh, what Newman walks, Newman walks racing. Yeah. Um, which was like an offshoot of the Newman Haas yep. champ car team, which was like in, in the same general area, yeah, I think, uh, outside Road. of Chicago yeah, or right, something. Right in our hood. We got a, a dude that, uh, used to work for them. That's done some shock stuff for us. And another guy yeah. that's in our final assembly department that was, uh, on the pit crew. So, that was on the pit crew. Yeah. I've been in the hood before. Cool. Well, well, don't bother need- coming back out to Mundelein because there's nothing to see, but we would love to come <laughs> I, I see you at Indy, man. Come out this yeah. time of year, at least. You need a chassis, let us know. We got to get you out here and do a, a, do another in-person interview, in-studio. It's always better. And then we're coming to check out the Indy 500. And then get I'm you behind the wheel of something we built. Oh, yeah, we oh, need to do that. Yeah. For sure. And I got, you know, I, like, this is off record, I guess, yeah. but, like, there's, I got some other, there's a couple of things that I'm working on right now that are, you know, bigger, bigger programs, like, you know, maybe, maybe more along the lines of like producing a bunch of chassis, um, for, yeah. for like startup kind of situations, but That'd be rad, dude. definitely keen to, you know, have like a, you know, just understand a little more about what you guys do. I'd love to just come out and sure. dude, you need to. with you guys and yeah. 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 Come on out, man. We'd love Let's to set it up around and chat. Right on. Thanks. Cool. Dude. Been fucking awesome. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you guys. All right. Check you later. All right. Have a great great rest of your night. You too. Big thanks to J.R. Hildebrand. Remember, you can keep up with J.R. at J.R. Hildebrand on Instagram at J.R. Hildebrand. Check out that fucking badass. Montero. It's pretty rad. Telling you what, badass dudes don't really fucking care what they drive. That's kind of the takeaway. It is. You should stop there. Yeah, he marches to the beat of his own drum, man, and I dig it. I I like the car collection. The caddy is wicked with the bike, you know. 
Do you notice every single picture of that caddy has something on the roof? Either a mountain bike or a Christmas tree. Every single f- picture we've But it, it looks cool. He's using it. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for whiskey review time. I, s- I thought that I was, I thought that was gonna land right. In my mind, I pictured that I landing right I next to your glass, like, a, like that. Phil, what yeah. do we have here? This give me a little. Yeah, just, yeah because a little it's, that is that's hot, man. That is some hot stuff right there. For a, I, lesser, when I, for when, a lesser man. Well, when I first took a sip of that, I thought there would be something going on with the proof there, and then I glanced over to 124.7 proof. Over the speed limit, for sure. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Good stuff, though. Very high proof, man. Woodford, which... Uh, Where did it come from? It came from Matt Saxton. Who? Matt Saxton. How would people know Matt Saxton? We have built... Uh, Couple cars, including the one on the wall right there for Matt. Great customer, uh, big whiskey uh, aficionado. We've traded quite a few bottles back and forth, and never heard of him. Really? No. <laughs> well, you're probably not getting any more bottles. I've never that. got the first bottle. That's why I've never heard and of him. You will not get any more <laughs> in the future. Uh, yeah, Matt's so, fucking great, dude. Yeah, solid dude. Good, good stuff. And uh, tell you what, I mean Woodford. Woodford can be confusing. Because when you mention Woodford, it's... Uh, well, their regular stuff is... Well, it's just good. It's, it's, just, a it's fine. Go-to right? in a bar yeah. when you can't get anything it's, else. It's everywhere, right? It's almost like a Bacardi of yep. the rum. It's really good, but it's, you know, you, you, you expect to see it there. So you don't, know, you don't always think of it as like, you know, if you're a whiskey connoisseur, you don't always well, gravitate to it. Every year they do these, was it Distiller Select, Master Distiller Select... This is a master's collection. Master's collection. Batch proof. Close to that. Batch proof. You know what batch proof means? That's the proof of the batch. Yep. Actually, not as stupid as it sounds. That is exactly the the proof of the batch. They don't dilute it. They don't mix it. As it comes out of the barrel. As it comes out. Almost like barrel proof. But batch proof is a lot of barrels poured in together how they came out in the batch. Barrel proof, one barrel. But... 124.7. One twenty four point seven. That's point three shy of one one twenty five for the layman out there. Uh, hot stuff. Hot fucking stuff, but man, it's good. It is good, really good. Uh, Woodford does have a tendency if they're higher end stuff, it's usually surprises the fuck it's out. Usually of you. pretty solid. Yeah. And this this is right there with it. It's a sipper for sure. We probably over sipped it maybe a little bit. Uh, we're getting there. Ish. Getting there. That's only half a bottle. That, not for not for grown men like that, us. Uh, that yeah. half a bottle hits a little differently than a lot of other half a bottles because it, it's like three quarters of a bottle of that proof. Yeah. But yeah. Seeing the number on there, at the one twenty four point seven. Yeah, it? especially for a smaller guy like him. <laughs> That's because you're smaller. So it affects you differently. Proportional. That's not a shot. It's not not a shot. That's a good way of giving a shot. Well. Being able to say that it's not a shot. You're smaller than me. No, I, we, I think That's, I'm way more than your frail ass <laughs> at this point. It's not nice. Batch proof, 124.7 proof. I have never had any of the, I've had the... We, we had the Baccarat Woodford. Yes. Right? That was what I forgot. That was a Woodward. This Woodford. shit right here, it, it really 
kind of took me by surprise. Wasn't expecting it. I was a little scared going in seeing that proof, thinking it'd be a, a serious burner, but... The proof, man, man. But hey, the shit. proof is in the pudding. It tastes good. <laughs> I'll say this, right? You take that high proof stuff, you put it next to like a George T. Stag, which is high proof that everybody seeks out. And people spend a lot of money. We're coming. You know? We're going. We're doing George T. Stag beginning of the year. Okay, people spend you know north of a thousand bucks. Yes, they do for that. Mm-hmm. George T. Stag is sitting next to this bottle. I'm grabbing that bottle. Right, it's it's good. It's a good sipper. I quite wow. liked it. I liked it a lot. Not real We've sure. We've been having some fucking bangers lately. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not real sure where to rate it. The only way to do it is to do it. You got to give it a number. Okay, just a solid straight number. You could have a decimal point on there like they did. Hmm. I really, really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the flavor. I enjoyed the proof. There's nothing bad about it whatsoever. But again, I've been getting into the... I don't mind the burn. Um, I don't even know what I've rated the last fucking 30 bourbons. Um, you got to take it down a notch. Oh my God. You're pouring water in it. I Just a little drop. Mm-hmm. Open it up, as they say. Some people say it. Uh, man, this is difficult for a number. It really is. Not really. It's a 7.6. It's I was a 7.6. That was the number. That's your number? That's where I was going to... That was the number in mine. I'm going to go 7.7 seven, seven just to keep the uh, number on the bottle. You said this was sent by John Blumenthal, right? Great customer. <laughs> had us out at his house. Did a lot of stuff for us. That was the customer you sent? I said Matt Saxton. Right. Matt Saxton sends you guys a lot of shit. He didn't send me fucking nothing. You're drinking it. <laughs> Tell you what. I've done a lot for old Matt. What have you have done? You? What have you done? <clears throat> Maybe I haven't done that much for me. I don't know. <laughs> 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 uh, Matt's a fucking great dude. Thanks for the Woodford Reserve. Master's collection. If you see this around, like you said, Woodford, I think, has gotten a bad rap. And not, I, I wouldn't say a bad rap. It's, it's, just, it's just perceived as like average, which it's not. That's not bad because if that's what's at the bar, you know it's drinkable. If right? you've came into the bourbon scene in the last four years, right? I bet you you don't give Woodford the credit it deserves. That's a, that's a, that's a fair statement. I suppose. Now, not the brand itself. There's some there's some things out there, especially this one right there. These are only a once a year release, so it's like a Thanksgiving time deal, and they're rather hard to come by. Jeremy gave it a seven six. Phil gave it a seven seven. I gave it a seven six, but I'm changing it. Look, I'm writing mine out. I'm going to do a seven eight because I want to do point one more than Phil. Do you change yours? No. I'm leaving mine where it's at. I'm a little higher than Phil now. I feel like that was the review, and I think 7.6 was the review. It's a good-ass bourbon. It really is, and it falls under the buy it if you can get it. But If you can find you it. probably cannot, I'm guessing. I'll tell you this. I'll go as far as this. If you can't drink this, you shouldn't be drinking bourbon. Not yet. Start out a little. Start at something else. Cool. This is something to aspire to. Get to the point where you like whiskey that you can drink this and like it. Dude, I gotta be uh, like, I think you are getting you're getting a little too brash for the proof. You're just getting a little too listener. Yeah, for listen. Yeah, (laughs) 
For the listener? Well, even not the listener, because they haven't been around. Like, they're not behind the scenes. Like, Rash for who? Me. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're just getting, like, a little too hardcore. You've got you got to be more inclusive, Josh. Right? Hey, everybody. Like, not, not everybody. Maybe you'll, listen, all right. Like, it's fine. I'll be inclusive. Be more inclusive because Buffalo like Buffalo Trace is phenomenal, right? You can jump in, sip it, enjoy it. Put it on the rocks, right? It's better than drinking like a uh, Cosmopolitan. We don't need to discourage people. Like it, that's a that's a that's a heater, okay? Aspire to drink it, sure. That's, that's what I said. If that's the direction you want to go, but we need it. We, we should encourage the bourbon. Hey, community. everybody, whatever whatever y'all want to list drink, come on in. We're open. <laughs> Open to everybody. <laughs> All people. Yeah, yeah. See? Look at that. Thanks for listening to Oil and Whiskey with the Roadster Shop. An Ironclad Original. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating review. If you Is like it, high proof, say thumbs up. Where? If you like low proof, say thumbs up because we're inclusive. We are. We're inclusive. Where do you leave the review? Down below. I think that's where. Yeah. yeah. Maybe down below. Really? Nobody, nobody, nobody leaves review anymore. <clears throat> Thanks again to Jr. He really was that good. Yeah, I know good Phil's going to give me shit after this because I said this really was a good one, but it really was. It was a good one. It was. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.